Hello, everybody. Say hello, Chris. Hi, everybody. I said it, but like with more emotion because I'm a real person. That wasn't part of the ad. They said that don't they don't conflict wait, in the ad. Uh, first part of the ad copy, pit one host against the other. <laughs> Throw one knife on the ground and see which one will fight for it. Fight for the ad. <laughs> uh, so before we get into the show today, we want to let you know that this episode is being sponsored by Podcorn. What's Podcorn? Podcorn is a website that matches podcasters with advertisers for their shows. What a great service that is. It's that simple, Greg. How simple? That simple. Think of Podcorn as a swap meet to okay. connect podcasters with with sponsorship opportunities. All you have to do is you sign up on their website, podcorn.com. It'll show you all the potential advertisers, what their company is and what they're looking for, be it host read ads like this one, interview segments, topical discussions and more. And then you just select what day or episode's coming out, set a price, write a little pitch and just sit back and wait for them to come begging you to do an ad for them. Brother, you had me at swap meet. And let us tell you, it works because how else would you be hearing this ad? Surprise, we got it from Podcorns. Meta, isn't it? It's (laughs) easy it's painless there's a ton of companies and new ones are added every week so you can pick and choose what you think would be a good fit for your show well i wish we had podcorn years ago i wish we had known about it so i know a lot of our listeners have podcasts of their own so let me tell you this is the best way to get connected with sponsors there's no middleman you just you give up zero rights to your show podcorn is there to make sure nothing goes wrong along the way and that you get compensated on their mission to give transparency creative freedom and full control to podcasters you just go to podcorn.com and see for yourself and get started doing ads it's easy podcorn.com it's easy podcorn catchphrase.com it's easy it's easy <laughs> dot com wow daniel i cannot believe you bought the natural history museum like you swore you would when you were 10 years old well i saved up all my stimulus checks and lucky for me they didn't so i got it for the life-saving according to the government sum of eighteen hundred dollars american why are you giving me a night tour allow me to explain sure the museum is where all the supermodels and sultans hang out by day but at night that's when things get a little more magical are you about to show me a bunch of rats not anymore I poison my cheese now. You see, at night is when the museum's exhibits come alive. Like the hit motion picture, Night at the Museum. You bought one of those Night at the Museum museums? Museum! Let's go inside and behold the magical wonders of a Night at the Museum come to life museum. Do you need to turn it on or something? Is it not like nighttime enough? What do you mean? Mm, Nothing's happening. (laughs) You fool. Clearly you've only been to a museum during the day. Look closer and you'll see a whole world of things that are alive, but under normal circumstances wouldn't be. Nothing is still happening. You fool. I knew you'd ask that. I didn't ask anything. See that T-Rex skeleton? Yeah. Eh? What? It's alive! No, it isn't. Uh, step over here. Not too close. Don't touch anything with peanut butter fingers. You see up there? The third thoracic vertebra? Yeah, of course I see it. My eyes always go there first. What about it? Don't you see it slightly vibrating? Uh, I mean, I guess. I just thought the air conditioner was blowing on it. <laughs> you fool. And look now! Our collection of 18th century woven baskets from San Nicolas Island are here to serenade you with their magical welcome song. Hit it, boys! Oh, and look! Our unofficial after-hours museum mascot, Johnny Cash Register, the Cash Register, is at it again. It's literally 
doing nothing. Well, I have to put in my security key and hit the numbers, but when I do, oh boy. This place is terrible. It's like a budget wonderland. Where's the tap dancing geode? Where's the Inuit people come to life offering me plastic fish? Where's my Teddy Roosevelt? Well, we have Andrew Jackson. The Trail of Tears was my greatest contribution to America. Don't tell him your last name. This sucks. You got it all wrong. Have you ever even seen Night at the Museum? No, have you? No. Wait, what's that? Where's that coming from? Uh, it's nothing. Don't worry about that. It's coming from outside. It's it's coming from the California Science Center. Woo! The space shuttle's filled with aliens and they're making cotton candy from space. Hey, you know Tess, a 50-foot woman with invisible organs? She is so drunk, she keeps throwing up and you can see the entire process happening. This is the best night of the museum of any museum. I want to go to the California Science Center. They're having real, actual fun. I, I know, I guess you can go. Suppose it's not much fun here at this boring old museum with me, your best friend, and Andrew Jackson, your best president. Just go. Whatever. I'll be fine all on my lonesome. <sighs> fine. I'll stay. Great. Uh, can you just, like, watch over everything? I, uh, run. Hey, everyone! I'm coming! Don't have any fun without me! I'll be there before the fertilized chicken eggs hatch into elephants! Well... I guess it's just you and me, Andrew Jackson. Abolition is the greatest threat to this country. Uh, where's Aaron Burr when you need him? He's right here. Well, my name's Aaron Burr, and I'm here to say it's time to rap in an assassinatory way. Ew, is this what you're like? I haven't seen Hamilton either. Mm-hmm. Hit it, woven baskets. I wish I was the California Science Center. Let's start with that squeak. <laughs> Hi, this is the third host of the podcast, Squeaky McGillicuddy. Hi, this is a new host of the podcast, Squeaky From. We started our own cult, and you got to have a squeaky. <laughs> you start with a squeaky because she's dedicated to love. She'll break out of prison to see that you're okay. She'll break out of prison to visit me in my prison. <laughs> and she'll almost shoot a president. <laughs> Which one was it? Gerald? Not Gerald Ford. No, it was... Um, yeah, it was Gerald Ford. Was it? Because someone else tried to shoot Reagan. That was Hinckley. Yeah. And someone tried to shoot Werner Herzog as well. President Herzog. <laughs> President Herzog. Yeah, the Mandalorian. Yeah, he's the Mandalorian. <laughs> Werner Herzog, you take the mask off for one of the four times he takes his mask off, and it's a different, it's a different German different actor. Guy. Klaus Kinski. <laughs> now you know you're in trouble if it's Klaus Kinski. The, he should have been Boba Fett. <laughs> Hi, this is Ali Meekly, the Hi. podcast that'll have you saying, why didn't you do this segment last month? I forgot to do it last month. Which segment? Oh, The podcast what? that'll have you saying, the one that I just did. What? The Squeaky From segment. We didn't do it last month. Oh, no. I you're a completist, and I you did. have to go back and re-record that episode because we didn't make a mention of Squeaky From. If you think I'm above special editioning any of our episodes <laughs> to add I, how many how many times i've thought back of like i think that intro could have used a song by the ronettes actually <laughs> if uh, you really listen to the first letter of the words greg said in that sentence it's be my baby so i think we have a new ending <laughs> we're recording uh, you're gonna hear a lot of squeaks yeah. and because it's windy it's mm -hmm. chilly and we're both bundled like like the first time we had to do a quarantine podcast yeah in the park we were it's, bundled it's up. almost as if it's been a year <laughs> it's, it's freezing out and we we 
both are wearing mittens with holes in them. Yeah. We're out begging Tiny Tim style. Yeah. Arms, arms for the poor. <laughs> One more podcast, please. <laughs> please We're let us in to record our podcast, <laughs> Mr. Crumpet. What's his name? That's not Cratchit. Cratchit. But Cratchit's the good Crumpet, guy. Crumpet's what you eat. Cratchit's what the person that you keep under your thumb. Cratchit is what Scrooge eats for <laughs> breakfast. Cricket is what they play. Kraken is what we're afraid of in the ocean. <laughs> Crutches um, is what Tiny Tim wears because he has polio or something. Well, why would Tiny Tim be begging his dad who loves him to let him <laughs> who, back inside? Who's also begging for money. A dirty cycle. Oliver Twist is begging Tiny Tim, <laughs> who's begging his dad, Mr. Cratchit. Who's begging Ebenezer, Ebenezer Scrooge, Scrooge. Who's begging the prince and the pauper. <laughs> who's begging Treasure Island. I don't think that's the same author, but you it's the same time period. <laughs> I feel. I don't know. I don't know. And he's begging the pokey little puppy <laughs> who reigns over all literature. Who is then praying to Pokemon. Who are all legion with cthulhu <laughs> deep space monsters cthulhu pikachu me too i forgot what it's me, called yeah me too is it me too what that's is, my favorite pokemon <laughs> who brings down hollywood executives <laughs> that's his ultimate evolution power so what it's it's february so what so what <laughs> so, what is this? so what mewtwo's gonna bring down harvey weinstein hashtag mewtwo it's february mm-hmm. it's the love month it as, is love month we have uh, officially christened it before we get into it, we have a few patreon people that are new to us oh wow we have new around. patreon people we've got annie Zarkov. These are all Pokemon also. Andy or Annie? Annie. Hi, Annie. Annie. Uh, and then we have John Davey, who was a Patreon person, but upgraded to be a postcard Whoa. level person. Yeah. Get ready for postcards, pal. I'm looking at you, post office. Get ready for an extra 30 cents a month <laughs> from us. They're not ready. After what they've been through this year, they're they, not ready. They can handle anything except getting more money. <laughs> we also have big na- a big get for us. Yeah. We've got Jennifer Lopez Jen as a new Lopez? Patreon person. Jenny from no, the block? Jenny from the block. She's still Jenny from the block, <laughs> to us welcome aboard welcome welcome jennifer lopez i wish i knew one single jennifer lopez song and i would reference it right now yeah, but I, was, I don't remember everything i'm thinking any. about is beyonce and then shakira yeah those are what, the, what is a jennifer lopez song selena uh something about the night waiting for the night whoa that's jennifer lopez pretty sure i love jennifer lopez <laughs> <laughs> my favorite singers of all time oh my god it's all coming back yeah, to me i remembered as soon as she got on the podium at the inauguration i'm like that's jenny yeah. from the block my favorite jennifer lopez song is stars and stripes forever <laughs> or whatever she sang at the inauguration she throws in her own verse, by the way. Hey, why not? Who's going to stop her after everything that's happened? The Secret Service? Yeah, Secret Service is going to stop her. Is it a crime to uh, <laughs> deface Star It was band? so funny. It was such like a, it was, you know, we're snowflakes, so of course it was a lot of fun to watch the inauguration be totally boring and normal and watch a 10-minute speech that wasn't interrupted by side thoughts. That was cool. I kept thinking when I was watching it, like, we're at the carnage. <laughs> we kept talking about the carnage. Tell me how we're the problem. Come on, do it. I know you want to, Biden. Tell me how I'm the problem. It was so funny, like, yelling at, like, Clinton to wake up and put his mask on right and then Garth Brooks went to hug all the former presidents oh, with no oh mask God. on. Yeah. Brooks, come on, get with it. When I was seeing Bill Clinton fall asleep, I'm like, they have to go to a different angle right now. <laughs> and yeah, Garth Brooks, it was funny that he first went and infected Obama and then Bill Clinton and then he's about to leave and they're like, George Bush is here too. You won't believe who's here and then Bush is waving. I'm your biggest fan. Who <laughs> probably is his biggest fan. And then yeah, you'd think he'd him. go to George Bush first. <laughs> a great day for American history when four presidents were taken out by Garth Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> when I watched Speaking Clinton, of assassins <laughs> he's criminal jack ruby no Garth lee harvey oswald jack Sh- ruby shot lee harvey oswald sure <laughs> add to the list john wilkes booth <laughs> garth brooks see the connection john wilkes brooks. aaron burr he wasn't a president neither one of those people were no president. neither of them they could have been though. they could have been and that's the problem with that whole <laughs> that's deal that's why they killed each- well one of them killed one of the other ones i was telling adam when we watched three-fourths of hamilton we haven't made it to the end yet that my knowledge of this whole thing between aaron burr and alexander the hamilton peanut butter commercial the peanut butter commercial yeah. and she's like 
how do you know that Aaron Burr was the one that killed him? Like, because the peanut butter commercial with the guy because had to I was pick up the phone. peanut butter one day and I wanted to win a contest. <laughs> yeah, it's weird that that commercial stuck with. I remember that more than anything I learned in history class. Mm-hmm. Thank you, peanut butter. Thank you, Don Draper. No, no, it was, it was Got Milk. It was a milk oh, it was commercial. A, it was a milk commercial. It wasn't peanut. peanut butter was the star. Milk was the well, financier. Peanut butter was the villain, actually. <laughs> peanut butter was the Aaron Burr to him. Oh, wow. Okay. Peanut butter is the villain, not Aaron Burr. I think it's time we take a look back at history. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't Aaron Burr that killed not John Wilkes Booth. What's yeah. his name? Hamilton. Hamilton. Who's the one they made a musical about? John Wilkes Booth? John Wilkes Booth. He was just allergic to peanut butter. <laughs> Imagine they shot Alexander Hamilton and he turns around and he had peanut butter in his jacket and it stopped the bullet and then he pulled out his single shot yeah, he gun. Pulled out a, he pulled out a katana. <laughs> <laughs> he took down Aaron Burr. That would have been so sick. He drove a car right into him. The car was going four miles per hour. Even that also, was an invention yeah, too it, far ahead. It also ahead. was a horse. <laughs> Let's get to our thing. Before we get into this month, let's go back to last month. What What is something? Mine is a stretch, but what is something? You go first because okay. I didn't do anything. <laughs> I didn't do anything either. I don't oh. know what you're trying to imply. What are you implying? That wasn't me at hey, the Capitol. Hey, put it down. We're pointing at each other like the Spider-Man meme and Daniel doesn't know what that is really. I'm aiming peanut butter at you. <laughs> yeah, I get the Spider-Man meme. He's like, There's like a pig on the ceiling and the homer's you, holding him. Oh my God. I'm so up with I, Spider-Man. <laughs> Let me describe memes to you. And I what? get that Spider-Man meme. It's, it's, it's well, funny. It's really <laughs> funny. It's the funny one, right? It's the funny one where we both point at each other. I uh, want your thing like it's a bit of a stretch and then you like yoga classes that you went to in person it's the Spider-Man meme <laughs> I stretch to point out at people in the street and they point back yeah it's a, it's a stretch I started Pilates <laughs> mine is Jim Fox on the LA Kings broadcast okay. on, Fo- on surprisingly Fox Sports West he's the color commentator he's a former Kings player he's the colored commentator <laughs> his uh, name is actually Red Fox this is a big one Elizabeth I'm he, coming he for you he keeps referring to the play-by-play guy as a dummy <laughs> so he's a former Kings player from the yeah the 80s okay. and he he has been the color commentator for the LA Kings since I think 1990. So I'm yep. wondering if he's the longest. Now that Vince Scully's gone, Jim Fox's old play-by-play guy Bob Miller, who was like second in line to Vince Scully, yeah. is also gone. So I think Jim Fox might be the longest-running TV sports person wow. in Los Angeles. And I can't because he responds to tweets a lot. And I think this is just an excuse for me to ask Jim Fox something on our Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Fox, how old are you? How old are you? Are you really old or Did just you mean pretty Vince old? Scully? Who's old? You are Vince Scully. <laughs> but he, I like him because he's so Canadian in his demeanor, yeah. but he also has a Canadian sort of sense of humor. So he's really good at his job. He knows, obviously, everything about hockey, but he also has a understated sense of humor in like putting down... Because the new play-by-play guy is like 24 years old. Okay, yeah. So he's, I think, literally half Jim Fox's age. So he like slyly puts him down <laughs> for being like a baby as much as he can get. But he's, all, he's a funny guy. I enjoy listening to him. That sounds like a lot of fun. I really think that he might be the longest running sports person i can't like who does it it's not chick hearn for the dodgers anymore no. or the dodgers for the, the lakers lakers anymore i don't know who does is this just like ai announcing for the clippers yeah i think it's ai I think and, it's, passed. <laughs> and still gets fired for sexual harassment yeah. oops <laughs> i did not mean to say that about women i can't think of anybody else i mean none of the other sports teams like the football and soccer yeah. have been around long enough so i don't, I don't, I don't think yeah. there's anyone else i'm sure there are people that are famous and they're not famous enough to get no like, three tiers away from an actual I'm not sports talking, fan. Yeah, I'm not talking about your uncle announcing Dodger games in his living room. Like uh, people who are on TV who have been doing it, I think he might be the oldest. I, I think that maybe there might be radio people. Yeah. But TV, I don't know if there's anyone older. In Los Angeles. Oh, though, in I Los mean. Angeles. Not, so not countrywide. Going, I thought you were going globally. No, like, yeah, I think glo- in France they have some old people too. <laughs> I think they have the oldest man in Asia uh, <laughs> announcing for the Shanghai baseball He's team. He's a big Clippers fan. But he got fired for sexual <laughs> harassment. Him too. 
Mewtwo? Mewtwo. Hashtag Mewtwo. So what's your thing of the month? You know... Is it Pilates? It's Pilates, actually. I haven't done anything this last month. I've been really, really bogged down. But I, I have been watching a lot. I'll tell you what I've been watching a lot of. is the Amber Ruffin Show, which okay. is a talk show that started post-quarantine, so there's no audience or guests. So it's just kind of bits and segments, and it's a lot of fun. And I've been trying to get you to watch it, and you uh too busy. Well, it doesn't take place in Los Angeles, so why should I watch it? <laughs> Wait, 30 Rock isn't in Los Angeles? No, but Mr. Mayor is, and it's pretty much 30 Rock. That should be my thing. Mr. It, Mayor, watch Mr. Mayor. You can have that. Thank have you. that one for free. Watch Mr. Mayor. I saw the first episode. It was really funny, it's but cool. I was only half paying attention to it. <laughs> so even when you're flying at half mass, it's still pretty good. Even at half attention, it's twice as funny as <laughs> Amber Ruffin. Yeah, I haven't done anything this month. That's fair. I'm serious. Take my Mr. Mayor, please. <laughs> Do you like Ted Danson <laughs> and Holly Hunter? Yes. Yeah. And also Bobby Moynihan. Well, and then that. two characters who aren't fleshed out and aren't that uh, <laughs> interesting to watch. But yes, yeah, Amber Ruffin, she seems very optimistic. Which yeah, is nice. it's, it's been really good to see an optimistic yeah. comedian who's not just like, this is all fake. This is all a uh, government hoax. Yeah, also a late night talk show host who's one, not named Jimmy, and two, <laughs> doesn't look like everybody named Jimmy. Also. Yeah, she's like a good beam of life on all the bland TV hosts that have been around for the last couple of years. Are you putting it down Carson Daly? I would never. <laughs> never. I would never put down Carson Daly. I watch Daly. TRL every day. Okay. <laughs> what did TRL stand for? Total Request Live. Thank you. They must have abbreviated after you got involved in the <laughs> TRL fam. Um, after they abbreviated Instinct, they abbreviated everything yeah. else, so TLR. You got in after they were playing Jennifer Lopez every <laughs> single day. So let's get into this, our listener question for this okay. month. Uh, it's getting creakier out here. Oh, we, we forgot to say that I have a great uncle who's estranged who said if we record a podcast in a haunted house overnight, we would we'd get, get a million dollars. <laughs> and yes, yeah, sp- we'd get a single sponsor. Hey, it worked. <laughs> Our question this month is from Phil Seiler. Hi, Phil. Hey, Phil. He says, I have a curiosity about the guy who put together Los Angeles Plays itself, which you saw. I saw it. Did we see it together? No. no. You don't see anything with me. Yeah, well, what? you constantly talk during movies on your cell phone. Bluetooth. <laughs> yeah, so Bluetooth. that you think no one notices. Bye, bye. Sell. Bye, bye. <laughs> You're watching the wolf of wall street <laughs> when i saw it we saw it at the arrow theater and it was 110 degrees outside and half of the, the air conditioning <laughs> half of the air conditioning inside was broken and it was just miserable oh wow so was that- everybody sitting on one side where the air conditioners were <laughs> we all stacked on like hats for sale <laughs> so who could get closest to the vent they showed the whole thing and then the guy who made it was there mm-hmm. afterwards but it was so hot like everyone just walked out oh, when it was time for him to talk so he says i really like the doc but if i remember correctly the guy who made it said the guy who the, the guy who yeah. i walked out on phil must have been the one guy who stayed the guy who made it was really sweaty and <laughs> i wanted to ask about that he says he really does not like it when people call the city by its initials calling los angeles la seems like the most common thing in the world do you ever run into people who insist the town should always be called by its full name is this a thing full spanish name the the queen of the, the river Reina. of los angeles i don't meet too many people from here anyways that are insist on calling it los angeles it's, it's almost like if i hear someone say los angeles that's for emphasis like yeah. when you get in trouble and your yeah. parents call you by your full name yeah lost michelangelo <laughs> <laughs> that's what I do like when I'm writing stuff for emphasis I yeah. do put it as like and Los Angeles, Los was, Angeles. was never the same <laughs> I think what he said in the documentary about that is because uh. it kind of like trying to put down it's like a diminutive nickname that's trying to put it down right. of like oh that's not there's Jimmy over there he's trying to run for president oh I see I see what you're saying so it's like oh that's LA it's yeah. not but Los Angeles you're gonna say four syllables yeah. every time you talk about it I was it. gonna say that like no one says NY for New York I was thinking the same thing but you don't have to because it's yeah, the same 
syllables. Yeah. I guess some people say NYC. Oh, yeah, NYC is a maybe. thing. That's but just no as long as New saying York, New York City. I've never met anybody, but I could easily see historical society people maybe being like, do, do not call it. Oh, that. yeah, not in my presence. Will anyone ever call it Los yeah. Angeles? Please, call it by its full name. <laughs> Mr. Los Reina. <laughs> the queen river. of the angels of Los Angeles, the river. I'm not really one for nicknames and abbreviations either, but I You're, still call yeah. it LA. So, And if I can do it, so can the guy from Los Angeles plays it. So, so can so. Ted Danson. So can our mayor. So can Ted our mayor. Our fictional. I think I have to take my glove off to start. Gloves off for this one. No apologies. Sorry if you're offended. Because I'm finally going to lay into the Natural History Museum <laughs> in this episode. And I'm so excited. We haven't even said what we're going to talk about. Start it's been the like clock. 40 minutes start of the riffing. clock, Greg. Before we stop, start. Before we, we stop, stop annoying people, <laughs> send us in your listener question. Uh, email la.meekly at gmail.com. Twitter at la.meekly. Instagram la underscore meekly. Facebook. Do that. Okay, yeah. so this month we're going to be talking about it's officially getting to the point where like I really wish like I could go to a museum yeah. so I wanted to talk about some museums that we either miss or wish we for yours wish I had ever gone to yeah even like going inside I know you feel very different about this going inside of like let's say Central Library in downtown I've been missing a lot mm. browsing through books I am not I'm just saying oh. I would like to go I wouldn't <laughs> you know what I don't miss you want to cover my shift doing the research on the Natural History Museum and then the Autry Museum I did like oh man I wish I could because there's so many parts of it that I've just not given that much attention to yeah. and wish now reading about it like oh I could I could spend more than three seconds in this one room that I walked through trying to get to the dinosaurs <laughs> I think I went to both of them before like 2019 because I we went with Jake Cannon for the Universal Monsters thing at oh yeah, Museum yeah and I, I walked that. around and then but you uh, said it was small it was very small it was like it wasn't like a room it was more mm. like a corner of it the was, museum they took out a fire extinguisher <laughs> and just put a Frankenstein face on there and well stuff. they let you do they had like a sound effects thing which was really I always huh. like sound effects because I'm a nerd not even that's not even a good excuse because you're the biggest Michael Winslow fan because I'm, I'm the biggest Michael Winslow fan I remember being a kid at Universal Studios and they should like this is how we make thunder with yeah, the yeah. aluminum being able to do it myself decades later was a lot of fun <laughs> decades later in the middle of a bunch of children trying to do it instead of me who <laughs> get out of here kid <laughs> and then I went to the Autry with Joanna Joanna mm-hmm. Linkhorst from Rockhaven and her lovely husband gave me an Ada a tour because she's a docent there or was a docent there I got but a, you had never been there before had you I'd been there when I was a okay. kid but I, I had kind of like I'd forgotten everything that was in, I knew that it was cowboy related but that's I mean if that's what you remember then you should probably go again I used to go there I feel like every single week I was at the Gene Autry Museum really that sounds like you <laughs> Your swagger, your bow-legged. It sounds like you've been to the Autry book. You always have things in holsters on the side of you. Constantly spitting chaw. <laughs> Let's get into it. Let's start with my first one. I did... Well, I won't say. I won't say until one sentence. Are you not going to give me your limerick up, oh. up front? Oh, I've got a limerick. That's what I didn't <laughs> want to say. So I forget I said anything. Naturally, a history museum should have been discussed years ago, but it was only natural that we'd miss the history of the Natural History Museum. <laughs> I hate this podcast. It's like at a 10 always. It never fluctuates. It's like at the max. That's why so many networks are interested in us because because we're inflexible because you start every segment with a prance around your subject heading i mean do you start the olympics with just like all right let's play some (laughs) baseball no you you run across the world holding a flame you light a torch who would have guessed i would talk about the who (laughs) that's you yeah you light the torch you turn around and then you give your greatest song parody (laughs) and let the games begin please talk about the natural history museum because i know very little about the history of oh that's not true i know a little bit what are you talking about the the monsters exhibit again 
Oh no, Daniel was kidnapped. He was kidnapped by a Gatling gun. <laughs> so this is an old museum, Greg, and it sits in one of the older parts of town, in particular, a really old park. You talked about this. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Two like episodes. The, I think I thought, it was uh, the amusement park amusement one. parks, yeah. and then a baseball. The, uh, yeah, I think it was baseball. No, baseball. We brought up shoots. Park. Wasn't Shoots Park like a water park? No. It had a water slide. Agricultural Park came up twice. Yeah, because I remember the second time you were doing it, I'm like, why is he talking about this again? Yeah. And now here I am talking about it the third time. Yeah. <laughs> so as we've talked about before, twice maybe, it was Agricultural Park. You ever heard this? Uh, never. <laughs> I don't do research. You know that. So by the late 1800, Agricultural Park was a, a filthy den of sin. It was just gambling, drinking, prostitution, worst of all, horse races. Get out! Did they also have dog races and rabbit races? Did they? I think they had a dog races where they had to chase rabbits or something like that it was pretty bloody and then they had lions chasing horses there's also the park where they would get two trains and make them crash and then That's all right. the people would go and pick up yeah. the shards of the the wrecked trains but if you didn't solve the math equation quick enough <laughs> the two trains would crash it was completely undignified for a city so offended by horse racing jockeys yeah. so one guy came along named william bowen who is a christian school teacher on sundays and yeah. a prude every day of the week <laughs> and he hated what was going on in agricultural park so he started a movement in the late 1890s to get this place cleaned up and transform it into the complete opposite of what it was like he la was seen as wild and uncultured by people back on the east coast back then and also today so bowen wanted to change that image and make this park into an area where he could exhibit the city's burgeoning culture and class a sort of exposition park he wanted if you will so So to put things on exposition is what you're saying he wanted to exhibit things in an expo (laughs) setting expository way (laughs) so in december 1910 it was finally cleared out and renamed Exposition Park. But now for that culture he was promising, there would be a few cultural institutions, but the centerpiece of it was going to be a museum. In fact, it was going to be the first dedicated museum building in Los Angeles. And with this park being a new haven for science and culture, this museum would be devoted to history, science, and art, and it would be called the Los Angeles County Museum of History, Science, and Art. We'll come up with a better name later. What year was this? uh, 60 years. Uh, This was 1910. There were like, you know, exhibits and stuff but there was no building in the city dedicated yeah. to being a museum trust me what are you thinking of mine that i did research on that also claimed to be the first museum in southern california or in los <laughs> angeles but was it a dedicated building or was it just a the bunch building of- didn't come to 1914 but they established <laughs> themselves as a museum but it was all all exhibits i believe i did say uh <laughs> first dedicated museum building in los angeles fine it's just weird that i did research that also claims that i'm clearly right but go ahead yeah you're clearly right you're that started in 1914. The building opened in 1914. They were ready to go so before there was then. No building. Oh my God. Greg. The building opened in 1910. Greg gave me a thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> he is considered. I most defeat. certainly didn't. Are you sitting upside down? <laughs> Did you get smacked upside the head or something? <laughs> so this was the intention, but it still had to get negotiated not only with the city but also the county. So the first proposals came in. Oh, look, even earlier, 1905, to no. try to get the city to agree to give a hundred thousand dollars and for the county to donate. I'm getting sweaty just talking about these. (laughs) Later, they upped it to $250,000. So what's the big deal? Just give us the money. It's not that hard. It took them five years to agree to do this. And in the end, it was decided that the county itself would be in charge of the museum and the city would be in charge of the grounds. That's weird. It's just kind of like a joint custody thing. Right. Everything that happens inside. split it in half. Yeah. Yeah. The birds and the gems shall be owned (laughs) by the county. In 1910, the museum was a go. And on December 17th of that year, the cornerstone was laid 
market for it on the western axis of what used to be Agricultural Park, which was now Exposition Park, which is now just a big, long rose garden. Which the rose garden, I I never have walked through the rose garden. Oh, you haven't? No, because it always, I look and I'm like, oh, it's just people sleeping on benches and stuff. People sleeping on benches, people making out in the gazebos. It's still really nice. I don't know what it is about. It made me think of, is this where George Lucas came up with a look for Naboo? Because it looks like <laughs> Naboo. It does look like Naboo, doesn't yeah, it? it? With does. the Gungan sleeping on the benches. And he went to USC, which is right there. Yeah, and there's also a giant George Lucas museum being opened up right next to it. Oh, Subtitle like- of the museum, <laughs> The Naboo Experience. Yeah. <laughs> mm, I, I, I don't know. We, it can't be confirmed here. As the LA Meekly promised, we can't confirm anything. <laughs> we refuse to confirm anything. <laughs> but now for the building itself. Okay. It was designed by Frank Hudson and William A.D. Munsell, which is appropriate for history from the BC that he was building a museum for, who were the guys who also did the old Hall of Records in the LA County General Hospital. Oh, wow, okay. The original building, which is still part of the structure today, it's it's the part that's touching the Rose Garden. That rotunda and then the three wings branching off of it, that's the original museum. Okay. So there was three wings, one wing for each of the three things it promised, history, science, and art. Okay. So it was a crazy mishmash of styles, the design of it combining Spanish Renaissance, Romanesque, and Beaux-Arts, but it works. Like it, that front entrance looks real, well, it's not really the front entrance. What was the front what entrance? What was the front entrance to the Rose Garden, yeah. Looks really nice. And when you walked in the rotunda, it was 75 feet wide, had walls of Italian marble, mosaic floors, and the centerpiece of it, the statue, the Three Muses by Julia Bracken went. So the dome of it is 58 feet high with a 20-foot stained glass skylight designed by Walter Horace Judson of Judson Studios in Highland Park, which is still around. Okay. Ever heard of him? No. Oh, that explains why you weren't jumping for joy when I told you that. There, I've Did heard you say Jetsons? <laughs> it's designed by George Jetson. <laughs> it's George Jetsons? <laughs> I've heard of them. I've wanted to try to do a field trip episode with them. They're, they're a stained glass studio in Highland Park. That's how I know them. Yeah, they've been around forever. Okay, I was going to ask you if it was stained glass and I was yeah, not yeah. sure if I should. What, the stained glass skylight didn't give away that it was a... <laughs> no, not really. I heard skylight, I didn't hear stained glass. I like the skylight. Uh, what right. is he talking about? <laughs> Since they were going for prestige and class, this place, it hit the nail on the head with this rotunda. It was just really elegant and yeah. it still is. It's up there with the great impressive museum entryways in the whole country. Uh, so much so that it was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1975 and was also the place where Tobey Maguire got bit by a radioactive spider in real life. <laughs> It inspired the comic series Spider-Man. It had inspired the meme where everyone points at each other. <laughs> the adventures of the boy who was bitten by a spider. <laughs> the adventures of pointy person in red <laughs> times three. The worst Spider-Man ever. Uh, okay, Greg. There's no need to get nasty. <laughs> that's Tobey Maguire's job. I believe you're thinking of Andrew Garfield. <laughs> but yeah, that's where they filmed that scene in the original. That's cool. Spider- I think that's cool. And I know you're being sarcastic, but I think that's cool. <laughs> I think it's cool that they filmed the movie there. I think it's I cool should, that I movie. should clarify. I think it's cool that they still make movies. <laughs> so this was the museum, but they needed someone in charge to give it direction and to fill it with a bunch of old junk. So the man they chose was the perfect dork for the job. Frank Slater Daggett. Oh my. What a cool guy name. Frank Slater Daggett. It kind of peters off at the last name though. Frank is a, a strong name. Slater is a cool name. Daggett. I think Daggett's a cool name. A it, it implies that you have a dagger. There's an <laughs> no, implication there that you, you the are armed. You're the one getting stabbed by the dagger. You're the Daggett. <laughs> it's a little too close to like Dagwood and Dilbert for me okay. to be cool. I know so you don't th- think the names are cool? <laughs> you're telling me you don't think Dilbert is cool? <laughs> you don't think Dilbert's a tough name? <laughs> yeah, I don't think D names are cool, clearly. This Dirty guy- Harry's last name was Dilbert. Dirty Harry Dilbert? Yeah, Dirty Harry Dilbert. This guy was born in Norwalk, Ohio on okay. January 30th, 1855, which was before the Civil War. Oh my God. If 
if such a time even existed. I, dinosaurs roamed the earth. That's why the Civil War started. <laughs> the South didn't want to acknowledge that dinosaurs existed. I'm not sure what he did for the first 30 years of his life or what side of that war he was on as a six-year-old boy. <laughs> but between the years of 1885 and 1894, he was working as a grain merchant in Duluth, Minnesota, cool. who was also an amateur photographer, and he owned the first ever camera in Duluth, Minnesota. You're kidding. <laughs> well, that's like when you're born before the Civil War, you can do that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, she owned the one of the six bicycles in the country. Yeah, yeah she was the sense. first person in Kentucky to wear stockings. <laughs> like uh, so many people have these weird titles. Yeah. But more important than that, he was also an avid collector of things. Ever since he was a kid. Hoarding? He, yeah, he, he like old newspapers <laughs> and takeout containers he can't get rid of. Ever since he was a kid on some side of the Civil War, hmm. uh, he loved collecting butterflies. And as they always warn you, that was just a gateway to collecting other bugs. Yeah. And that led to collecting birds. And that carried into his adulthood in Duluth, where he would take summer vacations up north into Canada to collect specimens. To collect Spiderman? To collect Spidermans. He would go up north to collect... Sp- uh, now you got Spider-Man in my head. <laughs> you got Spider-Man in your own head. I didn't write him in there. I think we have one man to blame for this. <laughs> he would go up to Canada with indigenous guides and they would guide him around and he'd collect a bunch of bugs and yeah. stuff. So it sounds fun and innocent, but the reality is that he was going around killing thousands of bugs and birds and mounting them in a collection. And he even perfected a new way to preserve bird skin oh my God. so that it would last longer and look more lifelike than leading methods and also design new types of cases that were better for preserving dead bugs. Is this the grandpa from Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Because it might be. They made a movie about him. It was called Psycho. It's called Pisco. The Pisco Kid. <laughs> Here it is. This part-time Norman Bates eventually grew a collection of over 8,000 dead birds. Oh my God. And over 2,000 dead beetles that he himself killed, preserved, and mounted. He kept them all in his small kitchen. He kept them all in a swamp behind his motel. <laughs> then in 1894, he and his 10,000-strong army of dead things moved to Pasadena, California, where he got deeply involved in the dead bird culture that was there. He even started a local bird club with other enthusiasts and began a new collection of Southern California birds and got involved in the American Ornithologists Union. But in 1904, the world of grains called him back and he moved to Chicago to be on the board of trade. But his H.H. Holmes obsession with trapping and killing birds <laughs> followed him there too. And also tricking them. Part of the game was tricking the birds into staying the stay. night. It's cold out. You need a place to stay in my bug hotel? This birdhouse looks a little bit like an incinerator. No, 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 no. No, it's not. No, that's for humans. I, <laughs> I just collect bugs. That's for human hands. In Chicago, he was once arrested for shooting birds. Oh my God. In Chicago. But Dude, let it go. He can't. <laughs> Serial bird killers can't. This is crazy. He was put on $20 bail for this and nobody expected him to show up for his court date for such a small thing for $20. But Daggett was a fastidious man. To give you an idea, he once wrote an essay called The Importance of Accuracy in Lists. This is the kind of bird killing business. Yeah, all scientists. business. So not only did Daggett show up to this court date for $20, he also uncovered that the cop who had arrested him was crooked and was running a blind pig, which is what they called speakeasies. And uh-huh. he ended up getting the officer thrown in jail instead. And he got, he got his $20 back. He came in with an Uno card, like reverse, reverse, draw four. <laughs> and the cop was like, oh no, I thought we were playing solitaire. <laughs> he got his money back and got the guy who arrested him thrown in jail. <laughs> 
this is who we're dealing with. By all means, he should be a more well-known name in the natural history world, but the reason he isn't is because he never published any of his scientific works or findings. So he's He didn't much, publish The Accuracy of Lists? Oh, it was published. Nobody read it. <laughs> <laughs> so It wasn't written in list form, so it was kind of hard to read. Yeah, today it would have gone over great. Oh, it would, he would have been a big hit on BuzzFeed. Yeah, 51 Reasons Why Your List Should Be Accurate on BuzzFeed. I would have read that. Bullet point by bullet point. 10,000 Reasons I Have a Bunch of Birds. In <laughs> so he's pretty much been forgotten by time. The way he has been immortalized, though, is that he has had several birds and bugs named after him. There's don't the, kill me. Please don't kill me. The beg for your life. <laughs> There's the Batiogallus dagetti or Daggett's eagle, which is an extinct dinosaur eagle. Morphnus dagetti, which is another extinct eagle. Felis dagetti, which is an extinct puma. Spherapicus varius dagetti, which is a red-breasted sapsucker that's still around. And also the Acmeodera dagetti, which is some gross beetle. So um, all these things were named after him. It's weird. I wonder how they got extinct. I can't put my finger on it. If there was a list, I could probably figure it out. But There's also about 10,000 other ones that were named <laughs> after him that are no longer around. I think that this memorial for him would have meant more to him than any statue in the Smithsonian or probably. something like that. He would have, If only we could have preserved his body <laughs> and put it on display. You'd be so happy to see this. He'd be this. so happy he'd be jumping for birds right now. <laughs> he'd be jumping on bugs. <laughs> he'd be jumping for birds landing on bugs right now. <laughs> it's 1910 and back in LA, they're preparing for the city's new Museum of Natural History and they need somebody to run it and one yeah. of the clubs that Daggett had been in in town had morphed into the southern division of the Cooper Ornithological Club who had a big say in who should be running the new museum so of course they recommended Daggett because right. not only was he an obsessive collector and enthusiast of natural history he was also good at business so he was literally the perfect person for this job so in 1911 he got the job as the first director of the museum and moved back to LA but what he had when he got to the museum was no staff no collection for a museum that was already being built <laughs> he had you know foundation pillar yeah and oh, him so finding people to work there was the easy part but by the time they opened there were only five people running the entire museum okay you're a mason but you're also the board, yeah, on the board to, of directors you had to hire the construction crew <laughs> can you do construction but also clean bones <laughs> without breaking them today you have to give a lecture to the visiting president from brazil about our bug collection but then when you're done you have to clean all the toilets because <laughs> there's literally no one else to do it the hard part was growing a collection out of nothing and being a new museum in los angeles which was a newish city they had a lot going against them most importantly most of the good art and artifacts were already in all the established museums on yeah. the east coast and also they had very little money to do anything they also had no reputation well what we had a lot of was birds put some thumbtacks in the birds wings yeah there's a museum <laughs> we got ourselves a museum so people were reluctant to donate or even loan any of their stuff yeah like private collectors to the museum they were even having to assure people that the building was secure from theft and fire proof to try to convince people like that's how little they trusted them like i'm not going to give myself to the natural history museum of los angeles someone's going to break in at night everything in this city burns not here what's going to burn of yours that's around a bunch of flammable old dry birds and bugs it's going to be fine but slowly the donations started coming in the heroes here were the historical society of southern california the cooper ornithological club that daggett was a part of the southern california academy of sciences and the fine arts league who gave a lot of their own stuff to get the museum going. The historical collection
collection was 100% donated and loaned from the Historical Society and also the Native Sons and Daughters of the Golden State, who gave a bunch of pioneer and native artifacts. Like, like How did they get it? Look, it's like, you know, it's a blood diamond if you buy a brand new blood diamond, <laughs> but if it's a blood diamond passed down generations to you, then there's no controversy. Uh, 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 guilt only lasts for two generations. Yeah. So does the power to convict. <laughs> they got like pottery, utensils, and photos, and branding irons, which focus mostly on early California life. But they also got a loan of ink and pottery from the Museum of Lima and a bunch of traditional knives from the Philippines. But then donations started coming in from individual collections like the Charles J. Prudhomme collection of pictures from the early days of Los Angeles and portraits of people who lived here in that time. So Prudhomme was a member of the Historical Society and his dad, his dad, not dad, his dad, also, his dad also fought in the Bear Flag Revolt. Oh, okay. Wow. So he's like, claiming the state for the Union. Look at that as you look will. Look at that. But there were also donations that came in from local amateur explorers and adventurers, which is something I'd love to be. Like, that's what I love hearing of like, oh, this guy went on a trip to Egypt and he, he stole all these things from the Egyptian <laughs> from people. the indigenous tribes there. <laughs> yeah, the he indigenous had to, uh, tribes of Egypt. <laughs> I don't know why I saw, uh, what tribe is at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark? Because whenever you're talking about pillaging uh, ancient artifacts, that's the first thing I see. Well, it also does go to Egypt. The original tribe in Egypt was the Nazis, wasn't it? <laughs> Going by your knowledge. The Nazi party. <laughs> the Nazi tribe of Egypt. <laughs> so in this way, they managed to get their hands on a very extensive and complete coin collection. Uh, an old style bomb is about to drop on an Acme brand bomb is about to drop on us. Well, right lucky now. for us, it's not going to go off. If I know anything, <laughs> until we get we get close to it and kick it. Yeah, until we try playing Swanee River on it, and then yeah. it'll explode. They got a this complete coin collection. They got baby dresses from early LA settlers. That was from the pervert collection of <laughs> copper from the old missions and artifacts from ancient Egypt, where the Nazis, where the Nazis, the were Nazi born tribe lived yeah. for thousands of years, thousands and thousands of years. For the art department, like I said, they relied heavily on the Fine Arts League, but they also got a few loans from East Coast museums willing to throw us a bone and also private collections like Ethel Conover from New Orleans who loaned a Raphael painting called The Violinist that had been in her family for 250 years oh and was worth $350,000 and they sold it. We could split the profits with you because we already sold it. <laughs> there was also a painting of William Mulholland loaned by the man himself Oh wow! and a collection of weapons donated by none other than Harrison Gray Otis, of course. Of course. Here, the cops are looking for me. Can you just pin this to the wall or something? Yeah, but, uh, he, he he didn't so much donate it as drove by and threw it out the back of his car one day. <laughs> he didn't donate it as much as he put it in a trash bag and asked us to just uh, hold this. it till hold it till the heat dies down. Wait until I get out of Sing Sing <laughs> and then I want it back. And he never got out of Sing Sing. They also got the Hinman collection of fine china, which was considered to be one of the best collections in the country. And also a collection of Chinese porcelain from A. Burlingham Johnson, which was also considered to be one of the best of those in the country. I think Hinman of the fine china had something to do with the building where Grand Central market is i think he might have owned it or had it it does built. sound familiar i, wrote that I think we're thinking about hinkley once. again i might be thinking of john hinkley god i always do that he had such fine china no one ever talks about that yeah he had really good china and he wrote jody foster and all of it i don't know what that was about either i don't really know a lot about history i'm kind of learning as i go i learned a lot from vh1 <laughs> i learned a lot from trl <laughs> then of course there was the science department and that meant animals and bones which was daggett's specialty oh yeah, yeah yeah he donated his massive collection of dead birds and bugs and then came 
others like the Yates Collection, which had almost 2,000 different types of seashells that were collected largely around Catalina Island. Then there was a donation from Baron Rothschild that helped build up a collection of 11,000 mounted butterflies and moths. Then they actually sent people out to places like Africa and South America to hunt and kill big game (laughs) to stuff and put on display, which is problematic. Yeah. But wasn't it worth it to have the last white rhino on display filled with straw in the Natural History Museum? How's our kids from like Pasadena going to see a white rhino? Who cares about those kids in whatever country in white rhino land? The kids in Pasadena have to see They need to see bones. But then, of course, came the dinosaurs. Tell me about the dinosaurs, Daniel. Well, you see, before the Civil War, (laughs) at first they got a donation of locally found fossils from the Southern California Academy of Sciences. But in 1913, Daggett negotiated with George Allen Hancock for the exclusive rights to excavate and keep prehistoric remains from the tar pit on his ranch for two years. Wow. What we now call the La Brea tar pit. So they got, he got the Natural History Museum exclusive rights. Whatever you find for two years is all yours. And in those two years, they took out a million fossils, mostly from the Pleistocene era from things like saber-toothed tigers, giant sloths, wolves, camels for some reason. And all of these were sorted in the basement in a room they called, of course, the bone room. (laughs) That's so funny. The bone room. They also found the oldest tree ever discovered. Really? In the La Brea Tar Pit. Oh my God. It was a 200,000 year old cypress, making it the oldest piece of wood in existence. It's so funny that like, this is nothing interesting happening in LA other than we found some of the oldest human remains here and the oldest tree is in existence. Whatever happened around the Los Angeles area, except for those one million dinosaur bones (laughs) that they found. Yeah, it was the oldest piece of wood in existence. And guess Guess what? They lost it. Guess what? It's part of Milton Burrow. Go ahead. They're still pulling it out. <laughs> they found it. It had two people's initials carved into it. <laughs> Cro-Magnon loves Neanderthal. But their biggest literally find came when they unearthed the fossil of an imperial elephant, which shocked me before I realized that's just what they call woolly mammoths, oh, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. also shocking. They found a full woolly mammoth. Damn. This was the only mammoth ever uncovered from the Pleistocene era at that time. It was 18 feet long, 15 feet tall, Jeez. with 15 foot long tusks. But they never found that volcano that's under there i know it's i know it's there keep digging could we get like a few more years on the lease and since this mammoth was so mammoth and the museum was so poor how poor was it daggett had to beg the board of supervisors to give them an extra 19 dollars to buy wheelbarrows to transport it to the museum oh my god no carry it you got five people on staff carry it oh it's just a mammoth it's not an elephant you can carry it lift with your legs well lift with your leg bones that you also dug up there use those as wheelbarrows <laughs> Dag- his back with your legs go ahead daggett also had the foresight to keep this incredibly unique and entirely local collection of fossils intact and not like trade it off to other museums for other things because he wanted to keep it available to be studied which is something that'll come up later so he wasn't like wheeling and dealing like i'll trade you a saber tooth tooth saber tooth tooth for could we get a velociraptor maybe (laughs) so this was the collection they scrounged up to start out with 175 of the collections were donated 35 were loaned and they crammed them all into 70 cases on display that took six months to set up leading to their first grand opening on july 4th 1913 still before your southwest museum no 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 that's not true no i know i said 1914 but it was a weird Uh, it was a leap year (laughs) a leap ahead for this first grand opening about 10,000 people showed up but only the science and history halls were open to the public but a second more formal grand public dedication came on november 6th of that year the second grand opening was part of a two-day huge citywide coming out party of sorts the day before this was when the aqueduct was dedicated oh wow and this day was kind of on the 
6, the museum was kind of rededicated to the city as a place of culture, and the two events were linked by the fountain in the middle of the Rose Garden spewing out precious Owens Valley water. A big week in LA. They were kind of like, we have water now. <laughs> we're just as cultured as... Yeah, uh, we're officially a city yeah. now. We're, we took our first bath this morning. Can we come over Philadelphia? No. Yeah, so it was it was a big to-do. We took a step into the world-class city game on that yeah. day. This time, another 10,000 people came to the big gala inside the museum, and many more were turned away with all the wings open, and people were just blown away by it. The art and history were fine, but people lost their minds over the animals and fossil collection. Because remember that at that time, most people had barely even seen a picture of like a lion or something like right. that. And now there was a barely alive, a year ago, one stuffed, recreated in its habitat right in front of them. And nobody knew what a dinosaur looked like. So seeing the actual bones of a mammoth or a giant sloth was unbelievable, but it was all real because it was a museum. So no one had seen anything like That's this crazy. in the city. So this was how it all started. And from there, they just built upon that collection and upon the building itself. They started putting on programs that became hits with the public. In 1914, they put on the first gold medal exhibition presented by the California Art Club that highlighted California artists and has been going on every year since then for over 100 years. They did a whole exhibit on the book Ramona that was really popular. The California Art Club also eventually had contests here every year for amateurs where the winner would win a $100 credit to the Pig and Whistle. Oh, that's pretty cool. I'd take that. I mean, a $100 credit, I could buy the Pig and Whistle (laughs) for $100 back then. That could be our uh, one drink minimum or a one item to get on the open mic. Now you can can afford to go in with a $100 (laughs) credit, the entry fee. In 1920, they got their next director, Dr. William A. Bryan. And by 1924, they had about 500,000 visitors coming every year. So they figured now was a good time to expand a little bit. So they added another floor in 1924 that just about doubled the entire exhibit space in the museum. Then in November 1925, they opened a $9 million addition that turned it into five floors, making it about three times the original space with major expansions coming later in 1930, 1960, which included the Jean Delacour Auditorium. I swear, there's so many more things in the sky these yeah. days. But you know what? There isn't in the sky anymore because of Daggett. Birds. Thank you, Daggett. Thanks, Daggett, for trying to make this city a little quieter. <laughs> so then in 1976, uh, they also expanded, but their collection expanded to fill up all this extra space as well. Like they built and they came. If they expand it, the donations will come. Yeah, that was their motto. Not many people know that, that <laughs> Field of Dreams was based on the Natural History Museum. Between 1920 and 1940, they were slowly given a giant collection of photographs by Mode Winman of Western America. In 1930, to fill one of their new wings, a hunter named Leslie Simpson donated 32 animals he had killed and had mounted that became the Animals of Africa Hall that's still on display today. Oh, okay. So that came in 1930. I love that room. Oh yeah, that's a good one. It's, it's so dark and it's it almost has the feel of like an aquarium. Yeah. Of being very cool and dark except nothing's alive, which is even better. There's a lot of rooms in there that I'm like, this is a mood. This yeah. is a very moody in here. Well, when we were looking at wedding venues, one of the places was the Natural History Museum and you could get married in the Animal Hall. Really? But we decided to go with live animals instead. <laughs> <laughs> but it was also very I like the threat of having live animals around me. I like to turn the zoo into this hall <laughs> if I could. So for the 1932 Olympics, they had an art contest as part of the games where over 30 countries submitted over 1,100 pieces that they put on display inside the museum, which was happening across the lawn from them also at the yeah. Coliseum. In 1933, they exhibited Whistler's Mother by James McNeil Whistler, which was a big get for them in the art department. Mm-hmm. Back in 1930, they also published their first scientific work, which was a record of Pleistocene life 
life in California. So they were starting to come into their own yeah. as a respected institution. And then the depression hit. <laughs> they were on the verge of having to close for really? a while to try to save money. But at the last minute, a donation from Mira Hershey, who owned the Hollywood Hotel and also was of the Hershey family. Really? Okay. Well, she saved them from that fate by giving a bunch of uh, money. And then they unwrapped it and it was just chocolate. <laughs> I have all these gold coins <laughs> and they're ready to donate. She sent all these briefcases. Oh, let's, let's open up and take a look at that cash. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, but still. What's the problem? Yeah, I don't see what the problem is. Got some uh, graham crackers, got some marshmallows. Yeah, could we get a donation from the Graham family? <laughs> Alexander Graham Bell, maybe? And of course, this being a museum in Los Angeles, they had to have their section devoted to film history. Up until the 1960s, they had a motion picture hall filled with stuff like Charlie Chaplin's costume from Modern Times, the table Disney first drew Mickey Mouse on, Lon Chaney's makeup kit, Fred Astaire's tap shoes, and one of the miniature Kong models from King Kong. But he grew up now and he's fighting Godzilla. He's fighting Godzilla. And I don't know how I feel about it. You know, I want them both to win. I want them to have that Rocky <laughs> three moment where him and uh, Creed are running down the beach. I want that for Kong and what, Godzilla. Can't they just like punch each other at the same time yeah. and they both faint? Uh, yeah. And then like Mothra King Kong's starting to drown and Godzilla saves him. And then, and then he wakes up just to see uh, Mothma come and like, oh, we oh. got to team up for this one. Mothra has sort of a love affair going on with, with Godzilla though. So I think she would be a little bit jealous. That's probably what's fueling the whole thing. I think King Kong has a thing for Mothra. That's the subtext that no one's talking about <laughs> no in this movie. So now they knew they were never going to be a major art museum in LA because the Huntington had that covered at the right. time. But then in the 40s, they got over 900 items worth of donations from both J. Paul Getty and William Randolph Hearst. Really? So suddenly they were a pretty big player in the art world. They brought on their first modern art curator, James Burns, who went and bought a Jackson Pollock for $400. $400 for a Jackson Pollock. God. But the board of trustees... This one has less splatter on it. No splatter, actually. No. <laughs> it's just a blank canvas. But it could be a Jackson Pollock someday. But the board of trustees were so offended by the Jackson Pollock that they said it couldn't be displayed in public and could only be used for educational purposes. So he just hung it up in a part of the museum that they never went to and wow. they, they never found out about it. But imagine a Jackson Pollock being offensive. So we have Blue Boy here. And then we have another famous art piece that I don't know because I only know Blue Boy. When we've talked about art in the past few days, Blue Boy keeps coming up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what, I mean, I guess it's, I, don't, I have no idea what's offensive by it. It's, it doesn't have a, a mother praying to God holding a baby. I don't yeah. know. Surrounded by fruit. Can we get a bunch of these splatters to have like halos around it? <laughs> Turn them into little pooty. They also had an art restorer who worked there in the 40s named Gloria de Herrera who was friends with Man Ray. Oh my God. And would later become very well known for preserving Henri, uh, Henri, Henri Matisse's collages with a special glue recipe that she created. Oh, wow, So that really? kind of became her legacy, but she started out at the Natural History Museum, which is cool. Then in the 50s, Norton Simon joined the board, but as we know, he had a falling out and branched off to form his own museum, which was something in the cards for the museum over the next couple decades. The first big split happened in 1963, as we talked about in our art history museum, yeah. when much like the artists it exhibited, the art museum branched off from the rest and left to form its own museum, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. So they lost their art collection. They couldn't rightfully call themselves the Museum of History, Science, and Art anymore. So this is when they officially renamed to be the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County because yeah. they lost all their art. That's a bummer. It, it is, but it's it's not like this person just, he quit and he took all of his art with him. Like it, it all belonged to the city. So it just went to a different, yeah. a different home of the city. <laughs> then the next big blow happened when the fossil exhibit became too big for its bridges and decamped almost completely in 1977 and moved to the Page Museum, yeah. the new thing at the on the side 
outside of the La Brea Tar Pits. So now they lost their bones. Their bones, yeah. and there's just a pile of skin and organs <laughs> now. These were both good moves for the city, but a setback to the Natural History yes. Museum. But obviously, they bounce back from both and refocus more precisely on natural history, and eventually were able to rebuild their dinosaur collection with a wider range of dinosaurs, not yeah. just like here's another saber-toothed cat. Here's a bunch of dinosaurs we made up. Yeah, we put together a bunch of bones we found and created <laughs> our own dinosaurs. We can come up with. They have these weird like Lego like attachments. <laughs> surprisingly, you know, many people know that about dinosaurs. So I made a Death Star. <laughs> There's not much to report after that until 2007, when some of the most major changes came to the building itself. That was the year they started a 135 million dollar renovation that wouldn't end until 2013, which was the centennial of the museum. So a hundred years later, the first order of business was a two-year retrofitting and restoration of the original rotunda that brought it back to its original glory, complete with a reworking of the stained glass, as I have to uh, specify with you. From George Jetson. And, but the Jetson stained glass that he kept flying his spaceship <laughs> through. The renovation on it was done by the grandson of Jetson. Oh, really? Uh, 2010 saw the remodeling of the Age of Mammals exhibit, and in 2011, the new dinosaur, 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 dinosaur. hall opened, which is chock full of T-Rexes. Like, oh. T-Rexes, and like, really cool dinosaurs now, yeah. just not just camels anymore. Yeah, top build dinosaurs? Yeah, A-listers. A-list. The George Clooney of dinosaurs. <laughs> Come on, what's the difference? Am I right? I like William Hult. No, what's his name? Who? We talked about it in the Harry Potter intro. Hult? Oh, Nicholas Hult? Nicholas Hult. He's Hult. my new George Clooney. <laughs> I, I like real young actors. I like Nicholas Hult. And, uh, Timothy Chalamet. And the little boy who opens toys on YouTube. Those are my, <laughs> famous, those are my favorite actors. So then in 2012, they opened up a brand new 3.5 acre outdoor nature garden that has an amphitheater and a trail you can walk along that shows the transition of local plants from the native days to today. It's wow. a really nice little garden. And this was the museum's first ever permanent outdoor exhibit. Then in 2013, they opened up a brand new entryway on the north side of the museum, closer to the Metro stop, the Otis Booth Pavilion, which is a six-story glass cube with a 63-foot-long whale skeleton hanging in it, complete with whale sounds and a light display that simulates being under the ocean. I like that room, too. I guess I just like rooms that make me feel like I'm at an aquarium. <laughs> so you like being underwater, but you hate the ocean. Look, I do. I would love to be on a submarine because I know I would be safe. I would okay. I would love that experience, but yeah, I hate the idea of my exposed flesh my exposed being flesh. underwater. Or I hate the idea of my body touching water. I hate it. That's why <laughs> I hate it. I, and Melissa tells me, you've got to take a shower. <laughs> no, I hate it. I, have to stop. A, I can't keep tricking you into showering. Put me in a submarine and then no. maybe I'll take a shower. Unless there's a giant squid or something. That's yeah, the, only, yeah, yeah. the only downside uh, to all of my plans is the giant squid. I, I don't want to live my Jules Verne nightmare. What, a hollow earth? <laughs> <laughs> what, 80 days world Eight, trip? Being stuck in an airport for 80 days? <laughs> in all, this six-year renovation redid 60% of the museum's public space and added 108,000 new square feet to fit in 12 new galleries and five exhibits. Two of these new exhibits opened that centennial year were a big deal for their mission of the museum in the city. There was the Interactive Nature Lab, which the outdoor garden was kind of part of that, but mm -hmm. this, is an in, this is an indoor garden, which teaches you all about local animals and plant life, complete with live specimens running around and a full exhibit of P22 in there also. It's a pretty it's pretty interactive and they show you like all the types of like coyotes and yeah. wolves and things like that. Not wolves. There's no wolves in Los Angeles. You know, something that's in Los Angeles. Uh, elephants and giraffes maybe. I don't know. I saw one in Griffith Park. <laughs> it teaches you all about like what you can see along the river when right. you go on a walk and it's pretty interesting. The second exhibit that was a big thing for it is the Becoming Los Angeles exhibit yeah. which focuses exclusively on the history of Los Angeles from beginning to end. Walking through that it's, the end it's so funny walking through it 
now after doing the podcast for so long i'm like that's that episode that's that yeah. episode that's that episode yeah we really should be in that exhibit there should yeah. be we should maybe be docents for that n- no i want to be stuffed and put oh in you want to be stuffed in one of the egyptian sarcophagus you want your charlie chaplin halloween costume and put on display there next to the real one yeah and more importantly <laughs> what's interesting about this is that the exhibit is the largest single exhibit in the entire museum the message that sends is that as opposed to other natural history museums that tend to give you just an encyclopedia of history of yeah. life on earth this museum has more of a local focus on natural history than most others do in wherever they are and yeah. that's kind of been the case since the beginning with like the history of early LA settlers when they first opened and things yeah. like that they have a big focus on climate change and how that affects us locally and a lot of all that is done in an interactive way that brings you into the process of the mindset of the museum rather than just show and tell and in doing so it makes it feel less stuffy and more alive than most other natural history museums that you'll go to but even still they've got everything you'd want from a natural history museum when you walk into the main entrance there's a giant t-rex fossil fighting yeah. a triceratops behind like the place where you buy tickets yeah there's a lady who's like reading like a dan brown novel <laughs> to kill time and behind her is a t-rex killing a triceratops they found those in montana there's the extensive hall of birds exhibits on native american cultures there's the hall of gems and minerals which i also love because it feels like an aquarium which has things like a 4644 carat topaz and a 65 pound quartz crystal ball which is one of the biggest in the world that's a great room too i love that place yeah I, so many fortunes i could tell on that thing <laughs> it's like the blockbuster exhibit because it's flashy you get to yeah. see jewels and stuff like that and sometimes i sneak in at night and take a few it looks like a room that stanley kubrick designed i don't know what i mean by that <laughs> but it, it's stylish there's a lot of tracking shots that's what i meant it's a <laughs> lot of tracking shots and shelly duvall's crying somewhere yeah you never know who's gonna pop out from behind the crystal ball <laughs> with an axe the original rotunda now has a rotating display of eight cases in it that they just put random things in from their collection like they have old hairballs from like animals and things like that so it's worth checking out every time you go because it's probably going to be different every time the original north wing is now the age of mammals the south wing is the dinosaur hall and the west wing is a tv show caught you there you weren't paying attention now were you <laughs> i was paying attention i'm waiting for you to talk about the bird room but is that the mammals room no the bird room is its own thing the, okay the, the birds is kind of on the other side and it's that's like, a movie too oh my god <laughs> i was paying attention oh. no i wasn't paying attention <laughs> the west wing is a tv show um the birds is in theaters this, week, this summer <laughs> they have an off-site warehouse in vernon near the farmer john plant that they call the whale warehouse where they bring new marine animal specimens and melt away all their flesh and guts with chemicals that's the that's the uh, psycho that's room the james holmes <laughs> his hotels. legacy is still alive <laughs> but this time it's for whales <laughs> they also have resources online you can access through their digitized collection and also resources you yourself can come in and use if you're a student or doing official research through them like super powered microscopes and like surface scanners and things like that but they're also just a place for casual visitors with their first friday programs where you can go in there at night and there's music and things like that and they're also an official la tourism visitor center so you can get metro maps and guides in there also as you're standing underneath a triceratops but you're in literally natural history museum is in like one of those spots of the city is like oh that's la history square you got you got usc right here you got the coliseum Coliseum, right here you got the california science center right there which has a great night at the museum (laughs) there's the california african-american museum Mm -hmm. there's the rose garden yeah and then they're building the george lucas thing right there yeah and then there's the where they play soccer with former sports arena whatever that new stadium the bank of america los angeles former sports arena it is becoming sort of like that's like our town square yeah that's the place to go when you're visiting it's one of the many you've got like two days to spend (laughs) in los angeles but they're also still 
growing as a museum itself. They still send people out on expeditions all over the world to find things like fossils in Tibet and bugs in Central America. They can't get enough of them. And geological studies in South America. All this has grown them to over 35 million specimens covering 4.5 billion years of history, making them the fourth biggest museum in the country, the biggest natural museum in the Western United States, and also the second in collection size only to the Smithsonian. Wow, really? Yeah. I think the Smithsonian has like 40 million things in them, and they're spread out over a ton of museums. Yeah. And we have one building and H.H. Holmes for Wales in Vernon, and, and we are second to them. But they still haven't stopped. As part of their Natural History Museum Commons project, there will be major changes coming to the building once again. The $60 million renovation will expand the west and south wings, adding about 22,000 square feet and redoing another 53,000. It'll mean losing the Jean Delacour Auditorium, but that hasn't been used in years. So instead, they'll be putting in a new 400-seat theater, a cafe on the roof, more outdoor areas, but the biggest change will be adding a whole new glass entry hall on the western side that's going to be three stories tall, and it's going to have like an ever-changing cabinet of curiosities of exhibits that you can... It's going to be free to enter that part, so you can just go in and see what's there this time. And they did this here because this is the entrance they anticipate most people using in the future with the metro stop right there. Right. And also to try to put on a more competitive face to the George Lucas Museum, which is literally... Right there. It's a stone's throw away. Yeah. And they're also going to redo the south entrance into more of a front porch hangout that connects more to the Coliseum across the lawn that way. But of course, all these plans are now up in the air because they were approved right before COVID kicked in. As long as nothing happens to all of this money, we'll be fine. We know natural history and nothing crazy will happen (laughs) in the natural world when we approve this. Obviously, they've been mostly closed since then, so it's uh, a little iffy, but this place is the heart of Exposition Park and I miss being able to go there, but what I'll always miss most about it is that I missed my opportunity to become one of the people that go out digging for T-Rexes for them and I chose to do this instead. Yeah, yeah, that's you. That is you, isn't it? I could have been in Montana right now, Greg. <laughs> Every comedian's dream. Could have been in Montana. I could have been a touring paleontologist in Montana. You would have for sure been bald by now if you were an archaeologist. Yeah, I would have lost my hair because my life would have been so interesting. <laughs> I would have, I would have so sucked many, it all up. I would have seen my first dinosaur and it would have shot out of my face. <laughs> I would have popped the wig off. Before we go on to our next one, we have yet another sponsor break. Can you believe it? Two sponsors two on one episode? Who are we? Another podcast? Every boy. <laughs> yeah, who are we? Uh, let's see. My Favorite Murder. No, we're not them. Um, lore. We're not them lore either. would have it. Unexplained we're, would have it. Yeah, we're probably not them. We're more... Conan. Yeah, Conan would definitely have it. We're more of like, uh, I don't know, a YouTube video with 10 views. That's <laughs> that's more our speed. We're more like a book report I put on YouTube. <laughs> we're more like a spoken book report that you <laughs> sleep through. Let's take a break, have a word from our sponsor, and we'll be back after that. Hey, Greg. Yes, Daniel. What would you say if I told you you could help end the epidemic of child hunger with your morning coffee? I would say you're dreaming. Guess what? After a cup of coffee, I'm no longer dreaming because I drink them while I'm... St- I have Melissa pour them into my mouth while I'm still asleep so I can wake up. Then I have those dreams that are moving really fast and I get yeah. scared and I wake up. And I wake up in the middle of the freeway. <laughs> well, they're back, Greg. That's right. Free lunch coffee. <sighs> yes. They Thank are you. back for round two. I don't know about you, but I'm always looking for small ways to do some good in this world, especially when I get something in return out of Mm -hmm. it. That's why we love Free Lunch Coffee. They're on a mission to end hunger in the lives of children one cup of coffee at a time. That sounds fantastic. When it is. (laughs) Don't interrupt me. When you go off. 
I've had too much free lunch coffee. <laughs> when you buy just one bag of free lunch coffee, you are also providing 10 meals to children in need. And free lunch coffee gives away 50% of the money they make to end hunger in the lives of children. As we've said last time, we don't want our money going to, we kept saying Jeff Bezos owns Starbucks, which I'm sure, I think a mermaid owns Starbucks. Yeah, so. it might be a mermaid. It might be uh, Poseidon's daughter, whoever that is, Ariel. I don't know. I drink at least three or four cups of coffee a day, which is not healthy, but I drink no. so much coffee and I, ra- I would rather be drinking coffee and it going towards a good cause. It's healthy when it's going towards the children. Yes. To end a starvation, I will drink three or four coffees I, a day. I, look, I'll take one for the team. <laughs> I won't sleep at night just so I can drink yeah. more coffee. You can't go wrong here with this company. Also, it's just good coffee. It's, it's specialty grade, certified organic and fair trade, and they offer a 100% money back guarantee for 30 days. So if you don't absolutely love their coffee, they will give you a full refund and you can still keep that coffee that apparently you don't like. Hey, but I, you I, won't I, I'll like co- it. I like to have a coffee that I serve my friends and I keep special coffee for me. <laughs> You're saying that you're going to serve your friends bad coffee and then keep the free lunch coffee for coffee that's a great idea yeah <laughs> i see absolutely nothing wrong with that plan. yeah other than having friends over your house during a you're pandemic. all wearing masks right <laughs> you're pouring coffee through the <laughs> onto a mask you don't even have to use don't filter it when you're uh, yeah when i'm making it filter it through when you're mask. drinking it Drink yeah the it'll weed out all of the grinds you have literally nothing to lose here on yeah. top of that for the loyal listeners to our show you can get a 10 percent discount by using the code los angeles at checkout plus you can subscribe to save even more one of our listeners to take advantage of this deal is my dad you're a dad and he loves it and guess what he loves it more than me wow i thought your family didn't listen to this podcast well the world's changed a lot in the past year now hasn't it it has hasn't hasn't it <laughs> you don't want to be shown up by my dad do you <laughs> go to freelunchcoffee.com right now and take advantage of this offer freelunchcoffee.com start drinking coffee save the world now one of my parents has to buy some yeah thank you daniel's dad <laughs> so what's your mom drinking for breakfast? <laughs> she's more of a tea person and Psycho. she loves drinking tea with that doesn't help anybody so yeah, i'm gonna have to get liked, her to drink she, coffee then help children everywhere free lunch coffee because your mom is drinking tea that takes food away from children oh my god my yeah. mom hates her own children i know she hated your mom is Idi Amin. <gasps> did you know that I, I, she was wearing all the medals and i didn't know what that was about yeah that's your mama so don't be like greg's mom be like daniel's dad freelunchcoffee.com save the world save the world now back to the show And my gloves are on and we're back. Gloves on. No more naughty boys. I'm ready to be nice again. Yeah, now I get to listen to you and I can have gloves on. Although you kept your, you're keeping your gloves on. Can you take my page? I'll hand this to you. Just take the top page off so I can keep going. Lick my finger and then I'll turn (laughs) the pages and then also lick the finger just to be safe. I should bring my car here and then we could sit from car to car and record. I thought about that, but how would you hear me? Mm, I don't need to. Um, (laughs) Walkie talkies. Walkie talkies. That's how we hear each other. (laughs) I keep picking up racist stuff about storming the cat. I'm going to be talking about what many consider to be the first museum in Los Angeles, the uh, Museum on the Hill. I've pulled two people, and it seems the city's pretty split 50-50 <laughs> on which is the oldest museum. You know, the one that's the oldest museum or the one you're talking about. <laughs> Who knows? The one that's the oldest museum or the one that came out a year later? <laughs> the Southwest Museum. Okay. But if we're going to talk about the Southwest Museum, then we need to return to one of our most beloved and frequently occurring characters on the show, Charles Fletcher Lummis. He was just in the last episode i know too. he was yeah. and it's about the same thing too i, I just can't quit you I, I just need Lummis. more of your just weird walking across <laughs> the country stuff please lummis or as his friends called him lum did they yeah, yeah. 
Don't like, like that. He was in our very first episode. He was one of the first librarians for the city and later became library director. He left about the time that he started the Southwest Museum. Yeah. He was in our previous episode, he, having worked with Adam Clark Roman, photographing California and how pushed to preserve Spanish and Native American culture in L.A. We'll get to that. And he walked. And he walked. From Idaho either, or whatever. It was either Wisconsin or Ohio. Yeah, he walked. Acr- he walked. I was almost putting the emphasis on the word country. No, the emphasis goes on the word walked yeah. across also emphasis on the country and the first time here. i heard that i think i bring it up later but you're like what a weirdo what an eccentric why would he do that and then found out he like wrote about it for he chronicled his journey for the la times as soon as he you right. know he showed up and basically became the city editor because he was corresponding with harrison gray Otis. well they because i remember we talked about it in the la times when they hired him and he documented his whole journey and then by the time he got there they're like that's the guy who that's, walks yeah <laughs> that's the guy the, the man who walks uh, he also created land of sunshine magazine which later became he also out talked about west. that in the ma- in yeah, the magazine well, I'm talking episode. like he comes up a lot because he's one of the city fathers and yeah. of them maybe the more progressive yeah but we'll get maybe. to that he was an incredibly innovative and civic minded man he did a lot to get the city going not just for white men not because he had any incredible financial stake in doing so like I don't think of Lummis as a booster the way I think of like landowners like Harry yeah. Chandler who boasted the city to make profit Lummis is something special we're not just going to talk about the what how and when of Southwest Museum we're going to talk about why the Southwest Museum <laughs> and the where and uh, the oh I didn't put so- where We'll get to the A-E-I-O-U of... This isn't the limerick beginning of one of yours, okay? I'm trying you gotta my behave yourself. I'm trying my darn <laughs> Sorry, You're my. like Roger Rabbit behind the wall, just trying to control yourself. Shave <laughs> and a haircut. I have my gloves on. I have the my kid gloves on. Kid I gloves won't, on. I won't. Yeah, I'm dealing with you, I forgot. It's not the raw, untamed energy of one of my segments. 1859 in Lynn, Massachusetts. Uh, Charles Lummis's childhood was not splendid. He was a very sickly, weak child, and on top of his physical ailments, he suffered from he also lost his mother when he was two years old and was sent to live with maternal grandparents until he was six so he was also like missing a natural biological mm-hmm. parent what happened this- after he was six you're on your own yeah here's a knife and a, a bindle start <laughs> walking walk yeah at the age of seven he was sent to school and reacted very negatively to it so much so that his father his biological father decided to homeschool him instead his father was a minister and a teacher i heard he was kind of famous but i couldn't find out more on that so he was in relatively good hands his dad taught him latin greek and hebrew before the age of 10 and placed him in charge of the 4,000 volume family library. So he was like one of those like he was a kids who read an adventure library. novels that's like, I speak three languages and this is my library my library here. As I've a been writer. raising myself since I was five. <laughs> oh, that's my Bunsen burner over there. Not a big deal. <laughs> it's my telescope. This is my talking dog. <laughs> he sprouted through his youth as a writer and a tutor and landed himself at Harvard. By this point in his life, he had moved beyond being like a frail hermit boy and became very interested. A frail hermit man. Yeah, frail hermit man. Very no interested comment. in athletics. That doesn't jive. It kind of doesn't, his. but he got like, he was like less sickly, although he gets very sick later in life. <laughs> Charles went into gymnastics, hiking, bicycling, fishing, hunting, and boxing. And while at Harvard, he came to know a young man who was also into boxing. His name was Joe Lewis. Theodore Roosevelt. What? He knew Theodore, he was boxing Theodore Roosevelt? Theodore he Roosevelt box- boxed? <laughs> yeah, that's what I, but like Roosevelt was like a manly man too. Yeah, yeah, so I it kind of made so. sense. But like Lummis being a manly man doesn't make too much sense. But no. whatever, old Teddy Bear himself. So were they boxing each other? No, they're just into boxing. Like a Hemingway novel or something. It. I don't know. <laughs> Lummis though did not graduate from Harvard. This sentence was in the LA Times article about him. So I thought I'd just read it verbatim. In an attack of brain fever prevented graduation <laughs> with his class in 1881, three days before the ceremony, 
pneumonia to be exact he had what they called brain fever i looked it up and it most likely meant encephalitis or meningitis oh my god like swelling of the brain fever it sounds like you're like getting really smart out yeah. of nowhere i know two-thirds of the graduating class was felt <laughs> by brain fever after that he got married and moved to ohio he went on to managing a farm in 1882 and then became a newspaper editor in the city of chilukathi in ohio shortly after but then the west called him the tramp hobo adventure aspect was one part of him wanting to move west the other part was in ohio he contracted malaria which was like common what? in ohio at the time of and course. heard the warm california sun could heal what ails you so there was that too he heard that record he heard the uh, riviera's yeah. record and thought this is a message which from is, god the doctor prescribed that when you went in for malaria <laughs> listen to this and yeah. you'll know what to do hear three minutes of this and then call me in the morning listen to this every 10 minutes after meals so communicating with harrison gray otis of the la times lum decided to walk 3507 miles from cleveland i also read up cincinnati and wisconsin to la to journal his adventure for the paper it took him See, look at you trying to turn the pages. You you record like a man and take off your gloves. A man with hypothermia like me. A man who's about to get brain fever. It took him 143 days to do this trek, roughly five months. He was attacked by a wild cat and two dogs, one of them mad. Two tramps in Missouri tried to rob him. Uh, he got attacked by a classic case of mad dog, good dog. Good dog, mad dog. Lassie and Bassie. Let me pet him. Don't you dare. He sprained an ankle in Colorado. He was attacked and robbed by a convict near the Colorado State Penitentiary. <laughs> he broke his arm while seeing the Grand Canyon and had to set him himself oh and God. then just plain had to deal with the elements and have to walk through all of this. <laughs> that was his walk. I mean, he got mugged by wind. The that hurricane stole all my money and my papers. He was probably trying to hitchhike for the same ride in front of the penitentiary. No, hitchhiking was not a thing in 1881, but good for trying. Do you have room on your horse? Yeah, what's wrong with hitchhiking onto a horse? Of course <laughs> you can hitchhike onto a horse. That's it's carrying a it bunch started. of stuff already. It's, it's a horse. Have you ever heard Oh yeah, stranger, hop in my wagon with my family and all my possessions, yeah. please. I'll you don't do know it. anything about the, rug, the move towards west. <laughs> well, you don't know nothing about the Oregon Trail. <laughs> you don't know yeah. anything about Manifest Destiny. Get into this stagecoach with my 16-year-old daughter <laughs> and my sister. Who's curious wife, about boys. And I'll be on top outside of the thing <laughs> running a horse. Not being able to hear anything happening within. You're a pervert. I'm not the pervert. It's people in the 1800s. <laughs> on his walk, as well as being exposed to the elements, he was also exposed to a lot of different cultures and lifestyles and was particularly moved and fascinated by mexicans and native americans and what he saw as a simpler less american less capitalistic lifestyle i assumed that's what he meant by a relaxing way of life which i didn't want to say because that's kind of dehumanizing in a way that's one of the interesting things about the walk he took because when i so relaxing to be living in mexican california yeah, mexican california struggling to grow crops in a hut what's weird about this walk though and yeah that is kind of like hipster white boy sort of like i saw the way that the cubans lived and i have to do it too but like speaking of Ernest Hemingway when I first heard about this walk it sounds kind of like gimmicky a little adventurous a little bit eccentric but then like kind of you know gimmicky all of that is true though it is eccentric it is gimmicky it is adventury but one of those reasons for walking other than to chronicle it for the publication was because he felt the railway was invented for people to skip over all this great land and experiences and he how can you write about what you saw on the land if you're on a train because if Lummis had gone to LA by train all of Los Angeles might be different there might not be a Southwest Museum if he had not walked and saw us different cultures and lifestyles and had appreciated that it would be a train museum and it it would be a train city would be (laughs) covered in subways he would have made travel town the a train right next to my apartment 
I like that in movies, but I don't want to live it. It was this crazy walk across the country that really made him who he was. If he left Ohio or Wisconsin, whatever, as one man and arrived in Los Angeles, a completely different person changed <laughs> from his experiences. And when he arrives to town, he's greeted by, like I said, Harrison Grady Oates, who declares him the first city editor of the Times. Two years later, while working on the Times, he has a stroke, leaving his left side completely paralyzed. Whoa. This was a miserable experience for him. Obviously, Permanently? No. Oh. Yeah. Why you mention it then? How is this important? It was a miserable experience for him, obviously, for anyone who suffers through a stroke. But not saying his tragedy is greater for him more than anyone else, but this guy threw his life into adventure mode and was moving mountains with his personality, his ambition, and now he had to slow it all down to concentrate on himself only. That was not a treat for him. <laughs> not at that point in his life. It lasted for 14 months, and he was still trying to help out in any way he could, apparently like crawling around the house doing chores with one side of his body and rolling cigarettes with one hand. What? When one of his legs regained its use, he would start riding horses again, which <laughs> completely yeah. dangerous finally i've recovered from that stroke yeah now i only need on one a, arm to ride a horse now to go on a horse before helmets get invented yeah. quick what now you're okay with him hitchhiking onto horses it's his own horse he can go meet that 16 year old girl in the back <laughs> of a stagecoach look i don't like the fact that i said 16 year old girl either but i'm saying of that time it makes the story more nefarious exactly i get why you went for it you Thank pervert <laughs> look i didn't go for it you're the one you're the one saying you get it okay <laughs> Jeez, Greg is getting a little strange in the quarantine. <laughs> he brings up one Pokemon who brought down Harvey Weinstein. It's all time, of a sudden. Time to get Mewtwo'd. <laughs> the determination of Lum was this unstoppable thing. One thing that kept Lum is going that he would... He's an Iron Lum one day if he doesn't slow down. One thing that kept him going was that he would often fantasize about the walk he took and he would look back on these Mexican and Native Americans and their lifestyles he encountered as this like thing to return to. Like this lifestyle that he wanted to kind of chase after and replicate for his own. He wanted that for himself mm -hmm. like i said kind of dehumanizing kind of it's a small world but at least like on the better side obviously of at least, being at least he wants to keep it and not destroy exactly. it. exactly that's the thing about him is that he is problematic but if you're gonna be yeah. problematic it's at least be in better, support of the thing yeah it's a better form of problematic and trust me i know problematic <laughs> <laughs> i've been in a stagecoach with a girl of a certain age look craig it was the 1800s <laughs> laws were barely a thing at the time it was a different time <laughs> this is the worst sidebar thing we're sticking to. At the end of the 14 months of I started it trying to justify why I had given such a disgusting age and you agreed yes it's to paint a <laughs> disgusting picture and then we just we took it too far. Again wrong side of problematic. Wrong side of problematic. <laughs> We're showcasing how to be on the wrong yeah. side of problematic. This was an example. <laughs> now to get on the good side of problematic. At the end of the 14 months of his recovery he set back into the world returning to a place he longed for New Mexico. He first returned to the Chavez Ranch in San Mateo then lived amongst the Native American possibly the Thai in Isleta, New Mexico, which is near Albuquerque. I've been to the Isleta Pueblo. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What's it like? Uh, you know, it's problematic. <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> Problematic in a good way. He also began exploring with his... This is where it gets exciting for you. He began exploring with his mentor, Swiss-American archaeologist Adolf Bandelier. Uh, he well, was one of the I'm first... excited about a guy named Adolf? Eh, remind you of anyone? <laughs> but that is a cool name. Adolf Bandelier. Bandelier the Swiss-American archaeologist. Yeah. Yeah. Bandelier was one of the first academic investigators of Pueblo ruins in New Mexico and Colorado. He was one of those people that... I think they both would eventually go to the cliff dwellings in New Mexico. It was very cool looking... Um... I was also there too. Uh, <laughs> problematic, yeah. yeah it's problematic <laughs> because like there's no air conditioning. But it was problematic in a good way. The food <laughs> was pretty good. Bandelier in the 1880s was working on studying the archaeology and ethnography. Eth ethnography. Uh -huh. Thank you. Ethnography. Ethnography in the southwest and Mexico. He was gathering information that would later go into his works. Final reports of investigations among the Indians. When I say Indians, it's part of a title. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. We should clarify that because in my next one, also the word Indian 
was thrown around a little bit. I cleared it's up to Native Americans whenever I could. It's problematic, it's problematic in a historic way. It's problematic in a way I can't change because it's part of a title. And if you want to look it up, yeah. then you're going to need it's another It's problematic title. in a Mark Twain sort of way. He figured it out by the time he was dead. Final report of investigations among the Indians of the southwestern United States was the title of the report he was working on. And a fictionalized Pueblo that ethnography, the delight makers. What? A great title for a BuzzFeed article. That one would sell today, yeah. They sell BuzzFeed, right? <laughs> That's when Lummis would come into his life working with him and studying underneath him. Under him. Oh, oh Greg. Oh, my. Now we're getting progressive. Uh, the two would <laughs> also explore Peru and Bolivia at the turn of the century for bandoliers work the islands of Titicaca and Coati. Greg, you're being a little problematic right now. <laughs> Let me tell you about Peru and Bolivia. <laughs> um, okay, I don't know enough about Bolivia, to be honest. But whenever I hear Bolivia, I always think Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. <laughs> That's problematic for That's sure. That's very problematic. I I <laughs> the first thing you think about when There's you hear a movie the name about two of a white guys who go hiding in Bolivia. Central American? Is it South American or Central American? I, I don't know. Butch yeah. and Sundance having the same conversation. Look at us. These exploration adventures really sowed in a great deep love for these cultures. These two white guys studying Native American and Native Mexican cultures. <laughs> cultures leads to plenty of these two white saviors yeah white saviors <laughs> moving in here it leads to a lot of cultural appropriation on both their parts and they don't seem to give a lot of voice to people of these cultures so they're okay. not heroic in any regard comparatively but if you look at the other fathers of los angeles like let's say doheny or griffith or harrison gray otis or the chandlers or Mulholland, i can't think of these guys caring too much no. about any other cultures i mean all. some of them actively didn't yeah <laughs> actively against them yeah so like yeah lummis has a lot of problems and he is a very white savior and i'm gonna I'm going to speak your voice for you to the uh-huh. Americans. Like, it's got problems, but... But at the same time, would Americans have listened, like... Yeah. If he said, here's my friends from Bolivia, yeah. they want, and they want to teach you about their culture. No, you tell me. So give it up to the guy who does care and actively seeks to preserve elements of these cultures. He would go on to advocate for Native American rights and fight for their justices. That being said, Loomis and Bendir, from my limited research, teeter on exploitative. I just want to clear that air before I think, like, oh, he's so great. So Loomis gets back after five years of exploring, and his love for the Southwest is reinvigorated. It's 1898. This is when he starts Land of Sunshine magazine and goes on to become city librarian. During this time, though, he was also working on preserving the pre-American culture of Southern California. He sets out to restore the failing Spanish missions, not just the two in LA, but like all through California. This work was done by a group he founded called the Landmarks Club, and they worked on preserving other historical landmarks as well. It's said that Mission San Fernando, San Juan Capistrano, San Diego, and Pala would not be standing today if it wasn't for them Hmm. going out there to actually preserve these spots. Also problematic spots. (laughs) And if you notice any historical landmarks that have been preserved let's it's probably thanks to the landmarks club through the years Avia adobe brand park pio pico's house a greek george's grave los encino hmm. state historic park the list goes on this group was the one that went around and made sure that they stayed the way they were and they're still around today or i think not? so yeah okay are they i mean there's the conservers Conserv- conservancy yeah, conservatory i actually didn't look into that i actually much. don't know how to pronounce it so we probably shouldn't talk about that we probably don't both of us are saying two different words so we're talking about two different yeah. institutions the constitution he also started the sequoia league which sought to secure just for Native Americans in the Southwest. Here's a long excerpt from the Sierra Club website because Lummis managed to get like-minded John Muir in on the league. Sierra Club in 2020 had to apologize for statements and actions made by the national hero John Muir, which included preserving and championing Yosemite for everyone but Native Americans. Yosemite, or as the bum would say it, Yosemite. The organization was dedicated... Uh, The problematic bum. The the organization was dedicated to protecting Native American rights, opposing the federal policy that permitted Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs officials to remove Native American children from their reservations and said 
send them to faraway boarding schools against the wishes of their parents, which is how you outbreed a culture, basically. Mm-hmm. Is you send kids to white school, send the kids back to their parents' culture, and then the disconnect is, yeah. grows from there. So they're looking to squash that. These practices cut off hundreds of children from their families and even prevented from returning home even during summer vacations. Lummis came to regard the U.S. government's Indian education policies as an abomination, which they were. The Sequoia League later battled against Indian agent Charles Burton, accusing him of imposing a reign of terror on the Hopi Pueblo in Oroabi by forcibly requiring Hopi men to cut their long hair. The League further opposed policies in the Office of Indian Affairs attempted to enact Native Americans from wearing Indian costume and blanket and from the engaging in Indian dances and so-called Indian feasts. Lummis and the Sequoia League argued that preserving Native American industries such as beautiful, artistic, valuable handiwork they used to do like basketry, blankets, rugs, silver jewelry, beadwork, and fine pottery, which he said every educated person recognized as artwork of very high rank would make the Indians better off than to make them ashamed of all this and to teach them in its stead to play the mandolin, play football, <laughs> wash dishes, sew overalls, and the light and the factory industries of factory mines. Lemus and the Sequoia League, it wasn't just a face. It was, they were actively trying to fight for Native Americans in the Southwest. The case that spurred him to create the Sequoia League was against the Supreme Court concerning the possession of the property known as Valle de San Jose, or as the white ranchers called it, Warner's Ranch. The decision from the Supreme Court stated that Native Americans whose homes were located in several rancheras on the property should be removed from their homes to a government-chosen reservation. Sequoia League fought so hard and swiftly that they made an impact. Instead of moving them onto a reservation, the Native Americans in that area moved to a new home in the same area which was still their ancestors' land. All of this to say Charles Lummis cared deeply about Native Americans of the Southwest, of course. And while others in LA saw them suffering through post-mission, post-American life and did nothing, Charles Lummis did something. Mm-hmm. While others disregarded them as simple, Lummis knew how complex their culture was and genuinely appreciated them. It was not charity for phony philanthropy. This was deeply rooted love and appreciation for his culture he was not part of, so best intentions. But were there people in this league that were actually Native American? It was just a bunch of white people. I think it was a just a I didn't go through the list of people. <laughs> I'm going to say it was in 1903. A lot of Smiths. A lot of Wesleys. Yeah, and Adolphs. A lot of Adolphs. So in 1903, seeing that the Archaeological Institute of America had nothing dedicated to the American Southwest, he decided to start his own West Coast chapter, the Southwest Society, which I think at its founding already had 360 members. All of this so early in the tale of Lummis, because if you recall, in 1905, that's when he becomes city librarian. So he's doing this all at the same time. All of this is happening in his life. I guess he shows up to the National Library Conference from what I heard, full western garb and a beard and got a lot of looks for showing up like a cowboy. And his love for Southwest <laughs> culture also shows itself in him making an iron cast. But I thought... <laughs> I thought this was something different. This accent's fake, by the way. His love for Southwest culture also shows itself in him making the iron cast and branding library books with it. <laughs> I think I remember him. <laughs> he had to do the sound too. <laughs> So finally, let's talk about what the Southwest Society does. Let's mm-hmm. talk about what the Southwest Society does. Yeah, you're, you're, I don't know if it's the cold or just saying the word Southwest so much, but you're getting twangier. As this I am getting along. twangier. I'm going to need some chipotle aioli sauce on something, too. I'm going to need a, a hot cup of chipotle <laughs> to kind of warm me up. Now, Lummis was not just into documenting... I just got to have Baja Fresh. <laughs> I, got I need Baja Fresh today. Lummis was not just into documenting things he found on his travels to the Southwest. He was also collecting artifacts from Native American and pre-Columbian areas. Their mission was to create a comprehensive museum oh what's this 1903 okay that's good to know covering the museum science okay, well that's about the same time i mean just because you were neck assigned neck, to do it photo finish photo finish by a year i guess it's a photo, <laughs> i guess it's a by 360 <laughs> days i guess it's a photo finish in the grand scheme of the world sure but i mean it's a photo finish between like the dinosaurs and the civil war yeah <laughs> it's like how people look back at history like t-rexes and the pharaohs were around at the same <laughs> time right
right? <laughs> I mean, you're going to clarify that. <laughs> you're right? you're going to say that's wrong. You're going right? to confirm that, aren't you? <laughs> I'm waiting. <laughs> so their mission was to create a comprehensive museum covering the history, science, and art of the American Southwest. Museum staff and research associates included, this is like throughout the span of the early days of them, Charles and Monroe Abston, A.V. Kidder, Sylvanus Morley, and James Scherer, who I knew comes on a little bit later. The curator by 1907 was Dr. Frank Palmer, who's also one of the museum's founders. It's kind of weird, but once I start actually reading about the Southwest Museum forming as a real thing, you hear less and less about Lummis. So I think he's like the visionary and yeah. helped to get it going, but once it was... Like, he's like the executive producer. Yeah, exactly. Like, hey, okay, let's let us let this kid Scorsese yeah, take he, care of it. Screenplay by Frank Palmer, story by yeah. Charles Lummis. Based on a poem based by Charles the, Lummis. Based on an overheard conversation by Charles Lummis. <laughs> based on a night terror <laughs> screamed out loud by charles lummis when it first started the collection was housed in two vacant rooms in the chamber of commerce building and then it goes to the hamburger building the sixth floor of the hamburger building which i don't mm. know if that's the same building i don't think it is i think one's on grand and one's on broadway i don't remember but i, I do know that the hamburger building was like the swiss army knife of los angeles history like i was probably in the hamburger yeah, building. the library or the brothel it's probably both in the hamburger department store. what's the difference and then afterwards it went into the pacific electric building the same building where coles is at mm-hmm. if you're wondering honestly i couldn't find too much on what the collection consisted so, of when they first started yeah so far I'm, I'm hearing that there isn't a dedicated building like i said this is just a moving collection through random office spaces that weren't used that was afternoon. the collection not a moving museum <laughs> that wasn't the you're, these weren't the terms <laughs> of the debate <laughs> that you agreed to <laughs> this deal's getting worse and worse every day <laughs> I pray I don't change my definition <laughs> of a museum further. This place is really no good to me, Dad. Okay, like I was saying, I can't find too much on the actual what consisted of the collection when they started out, but Palmer's collection seemed to be the founding collection along with whatever Lummis had of ethnographic objects, manuscripts, sound recordings, and photographs. I know because of a news article in 1908 that their collection included pottery such as beautifully designed glazed piece that looked like a concave turtle shell found at the southwest Paiute cliff dwellings in New Mexico along with six big vases and food bowls. Like probably pottery some yeah, like your um, standard relics and yeah exactly with the moving the collection around the southwest society was looking for a permanent home for their collection planning for the permanent space began in 1906 when lummis and executive committee of the southwest society began to look for land they found their spot on mount washington in highland park securing 38 acres in 1907 lummis and the southwest society with their collection managed to garner support specifically money support specifically words of encouragement specifically bags of money for the city's elite money bags because the money was raised privately it meant their collection space could be free to the public they didn't use like tax dollars to open this well uh, what are you what are you just throwing these uh, accusations around sure we use tax dollars yeah. <laughs> the natural history museum what do you want you think we just bring in all of those bugs and birds for free who's gonna buy the mammoth from the tar pits you we had to beg the city for 19 dollars <laughs> to get a wheelbarrow you know they said to me carry it lift with your leg lift the legs with your legs <laughs> need i repeat the thing about the femur bone or whatever i said the museum never received a set of public money nor has it charged anyone for its services they're very proud of that they shouldn't be to design the museum they tapped architect sumner p hunt and his partner silas burns sumner hunt you may recall was the other architect behind the bradbury building hmm. the one who wasn't grandfather of the force ackerman and didn't get the go-ahead on the project from spirits that was george wyman <laughs> the For- rational one the rational one so you on board for this project yeah a ghost told me it was okay i said in front of my very impressionable <laughs> grandson 
and all of his dorky friends who are all have dressed a, like space cadets. <laughs> whatever those are. What space? Whatever space is. Whatever space. The is. ocean up above. You want to do your six-minute stand-up joke right now? Let me stand up. <laughs> hit the music. Hit. Get the bass. <laughs> hit the sounds of people drinking and not paying attention. Can we turn on like every football game going on in the country <laughs> right now? Then I only then will I feel comfortable to tell a joke. I know it's rare that the World Series <laughs> and the Super Bowl happen at the same time, but guys, hit it. For the look of the building, they chose to design it as a mission revival style, adhering to the Southwest theme of their collection and kind of going for the mission look. Isn't it sort of like a, almost like a castle-y? Like it's, it's got it's castle, like, it's got towers and yeah. not minarets, but it's got like the sort minotaurs. of... Minotaurs. It's got minotaurs. It has a maze in the middle. He'll kill you if you get it wrong. There's a couple towers. I'm not going to say the title of a Tolkien novel. There's a couple of towers. Between one and three towers. <laughs> one and three towers. <laughs> and it's got like a squares cut in and out. Yeah, I don't know what that's called. And like uh, terracotta Heidi holes. A peekaboo holes. I haven't been there, but I parked around there once to take the gold line or whatever to oh, right. Pasadena. And it looked like a castle. <laughs> because it's on top of a hill. Yeah, yeah. A pretty big hill in Washington. You could see it really well from the freeway from the 110 or if you're driving down Fig or on the gold line. I drive down the gold line all the time. I drive on the tracks of the gold line just all the time. Just lock in like, a, like <laughs> at an amusement park. I didn't find a lot of places describing, architecturally describing the interior or exterior. What I could find, it, anyone who understands architecture, I'll describe a little bit. The Caracol Tower, which is the big one, features Spanish colonial revival stylings and is topped by a stepped parapet. I believe that's where the spiral staircase is at. Uh, there's glassless arch windows. On the top of, on the opposite end of the building, there's a squatter tower. There's a beautiful terrace on the main entrance. Inside is a beautiful grand hall with a curved ceiling. The roofs are terracotta. Southwest Museum is kind of weird on in like how little is described mm. about it. It's one of the sort of, it's second tier in terms of publicity of museums in the city. Yeah. I think that I went there as a kid on a field trip, but mm -hmm. I really don't remember much. Many of the displays have been donated were part of a larger portion of original papers, manuscripts, and maps that would end up in the library as like their big volumes and stuff. The earliest donation to the library was in 1910 by Joseph Amasa Monk. He donated his valuable collection of photographs, manuscripts, maps, and books on Arizona. This collection also includes early territorial documents that are not held in the state of Arizona. I don't know why we have them, <laughs> but it's been used over the years to help resolve land ownership disputes. The museum is at 234 Museum Drive, and that officially opened in 1914. The Southwest mm, Museum was one... That's, uh, do we need to rewind the tape and see when the Natural History Museum was opened? It was one of the first museums in Los Angeles, and it was dedicated to the culture that modern Los Angeles was helping to usher away. It was not too far from Lummis' actual home. He built a home which is now part of the Southwest Museum. It's owned by the Southwest Museum, mm. called Al Aliso, which Alice. Alisol. Alisol? A-L-I-S-A-L. Alisol. Like Alisol River, but Alisal. I know Aliso. Alisal. Which still stands today. At the time, he... Is it like a rental? Alisol? That's funny. That's really funny. What I'm asking is, is it for sale right now? <laughs> when can I move in is what I'm asking. He and his wife at the time, he had many, used their last $100 to buy a lot close to the river. It took 13 to 15 years to build it in its entirety. He had help from a young Native American boy named Don Carlos to construct it. They use river boulders and concrete to build it. So if you see it, it's like a... Yeah, it, it looks like it. it speaking of a franchise that will not be named, it looks like what a small diminutive character from that franchise would live in. Yeah, it's like brick. It's like Bricks stones. And stones. And and stuff, yeah. It's pulled from the river, yeah. Pulled from the river. Wow, that's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> it must smell really bad. Go on. Construction started for that in 1898. That sounds like around the time he had a stroke, which is probably from carrying rocks. <laughs> but it, it was finished about 1913, they think, or from what I can gather, because everyone's like, 15 years from when he started, but it said uh, so I got two dates on when he started. The year that the first museum in the city opened? You mean the Southwest Museum? <laughs> 
It still stands, like I, I said. I mean, it's, it's in the southwest of the city, kind of, you know, where it's USC. That's where the <laughs> museum is that we're talking about. It still stands today. It's along the 110 freeway, 200 East Avenue 43. I stumbled upon it many times. Like, what's this hut? And it's Charles Thomas' house. <laughs> what's the smelly old rock hut? <laughs> in the 20s, the Southwest Museum got a new director, James A.B. Schur, one of the first guys who was involved in it. And they moved from, oh, this is where we keep our collection, right. to a museum focusing on education, anthropology, early Native American history, and contemporary Native American culture. It says South Southwest, but is it only it's not like pioneer stuff it's just native american i think it's stuff just native there? american okay. stuff yeah they branched out with outreach programs guided tours and a lecture series they also started a publication called the master key the museum's membership magazine charles lummis died in 1928 leaving behind a remarkable legacy southwest museum isn't even close to being what he's remembered most for <laughs> although problematic lummis like i said advocated for a multicultural multi-ethnic los angeles here's a weird thing that i learned that is completely side note if we ever did our side note patreon thing this would be that uh-huh. in 1991 when his son Charles Lummis's son Jordan Lummis he has like a weirder name but he goes by Jordan when he was 91 years old he shot and killed his wife and then himself a murder suicide his reasoning was that his wife was in ill health his wife was named Gregory was in ill health and couldn't stand it anymore and he didn't want to go on living without her so he killed her and then shot himself what a noble guy if everyone agreed to it pretty romantic <laughs> if it's a surprise thing something tells me Gregory didn't agree to it so Look, we're done with Charles Lummis we can't control our own children now <laughs> <laughs> Some people's children are just embarrassments. <laughs> <laughs> embarrassments in the family. So a lot of this info come below that I'm about to say comes from the Online Archive of California's Finding Aid on the Museum, which thankfully gave me a great timeline. Back to the museum. In the 30s, they brought on anthropologist Fred Hodges to be the new director. Hodges himself had a career of working with the Smithsonian. He looked over the museum until the mid-50s, and he really made the Southwest Museum what it is today. Through his connections to other museums and institutions, the collection of the Southwest Museum swelled to 200,000 items including photographs manuscripts and books all going to their library which was a from what i heard a great research library i think that's the guy who was also involved with roman oh maybe yeah maybe that's how i know fred hodges because i think yeah i think he's the one who took Roman on the photographic journeys around the Southwest. Maybe you're right, yeah. He encouraged working Native American I mean, artists to... I know to... what I'm talking about. I'm right. We don't have to go back. I have a photographic memory. I have a photographic memory. It's just that they're Polaroids, so it takes a while it to develop. A it takes like five years for me to develop a memory. He encouraged working Native American artists to produce work so the museum could acquire them. So he's actively going to artists saying, if you paint this, we'll buy it from okay. you. They have a massive collection of Navajo textiles, which is most likely the biggest collection of systematic textiles in the country. They developed a Hopi collection, which included Baskets, clothing, Katsini dolls, and other objects. The basket collection that's pronounced Kachina dolls. Is it Kachi- it's spelled? I only know knew them by name, Kachina dolls. And I recently, just like a week ago, saw something spelled out the word. I'm like, that doesn't spell Kachina. Kachina dolls. Kachina dolls. Oh, Kachina dolls. They're cool. I have one. Is that right? Yeah. Describe it. It has a face like this. <laughs> The basket collection of the Southwest Museum is thought to be the country's largest collection of Native American baskets. It contains not only tourist pieces, but everyday items. Their collection there. Mm. The Hopi collection. The baskets, which are part of the bigger collection, span the centuries from pre-Puebloan age to the 21st century. They span the Americas from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego. Hodge also put out a couple of publication series that were kind of famous. The Hodge Anniversary Series, the Southwest Museum Papers, and the Southwest Museum Leaflets. The Master Key magazine went national under Hodge's direction. He filled the staff and the board of trustees with inf- 
influential, prominent anthropologist. So it was like, in his era, became like fleshed out in a full working Southwest Museum. In 1943, one of the expeditions from the Southwest Museum team found an ancient stone bowl site in the Big Tahunga Wash near Orcas and Foothill Boulevard in San Fernando. What's a stone bowl site? Is it was it a, like a, a stone that looks like, like a, a stone bowl? bowl. It was actually discovered by Mr. and Mrs. Lloyd McAfee, who were out enlarging their garden and found it. The McAfee's found that they and their neighbors now lived on what was once a ceremonial site for possibly the Keech. But the problem with the South Museum was seen as early as the 1950s. That's at least when I could find the first articles that were like, I got a problem. The attendance, problematic. attendance was a big problem. There was no definitive answer on why that is, but some say because Highland Park at the time was off the beaten path, uh-huh. maybe. Another deterrent was the lack of parking for attendees up to 1956 when they finally built a parking lot. If pedestrians wanted to get to the front doors even, it was a hike after having to look for parking on tight, curvy hillside residential streets. It was not an ideal location after all, although it's quite beautiful. One solution to get more foot traffic was to dig into the mountain that the museum was built on and build a tunnel that would lead to a staircase to get you inside. Or later they added a rickety ladder or a rickety ladder, a rickety elevator. Even better. Yeah. So they did that. The tunnel under the Southwest Museum is 280 feet long and quite narrow and disorienting. The entrance is beautiful and is yet another mine revival piece in Southern California. Along the walls of the tunnel are about 12 niches that would hold dioramas depicting indigenous scenes. But it was really hot in that tunnel. So every all the dioramas were really kind of like malformed because of the heat because there's no ventilation other than the, the two entrance and the exit so what? this tunnel this tunnel this tunnel this it, tunnel it's still there yeah it's still there after quarantine we were driving around and we wanted to kind of get a look at the southwest museum and we passed the that entranceway and that beautiful entrance of mine revival one it leads to the tunnel so you can kind of look down the tunnel what do you mean after quarantine you lost me at after quarantine i went to the exterior of the southwest museum and i could see the tunnel from behind closed doors after quarantine meaning like once the quarantine was put into place oh okay then i, I went you mean quarantine isn't over yet in 1977 the braun research library building was constructed the house the collections of printed materials sound recordings maps works of art on paper and archives and over 140,000 photographs showcasing the art traditional clothing dances rituals ceremonies dwellings and various aspects of daily life for the different native american groups at some point around here the southwest museum became more aware of the sensitive issues surrounding the work of early anthropologists regarding native american groups and how unfair it was for people outside the culture to comment on what was happening inside so at this point the library staff working at the southwest museum began working with native american consultants to determine what culturally sensitive issues might arise from providing greater intellectual and visual access to the collection and how they how they wanted to describe to the public so at least at this point they're like aware of it and actively trying to bring native american people in to talk about it and in 1981 a new museum director stepped in and that was patrick houlihan who worked hard on rehabilitating the physical museum which had been kind of crumbly since it was built in 1914 since it was built out of rocks pulled out of the river <laughs> and trying to bring it up to modern standards he also created a development office and public relations department he breathed life into the docent program he increased the museum's endowment and started the arco facility for exhibitions it was also under Houlihan's direction that a number of exhibitions turned over more frequently giving people more of a reason to come back in 1984 the museum went through another renovation by the 80s attendance clocked in at around 60,000 people annually which included 25,000 elementary school kids <laughs> not enough at all, all. At once yeah all at once all on the same day in 1986 the board of trustees was looking to merge with another institution to help relieve the financial distress that the museum was under and in 1987 to cut costs and balance the budget they had to close the library and archives at the southwest museum that's their most cherished thing it certainly is for the rest of their days the southwest museum would be struggling mm. but changes were made a curatorial department welcomed kathy whitaker in 1991 who worked on strengthening the relationship the museum had with native american communities that the museum represented in their collection invitations 
were given to the communities for anyone who wanted to become a consultant or a curator, basically, if they had were willing to go right. through the schools. But that alone, them inviting Native American voices into their community was not enough for the public. Under their new director, Thomas Wilson, the museum continued seeking money and land because they were at this point willing to give up their original spot and they were looking for to move their entire operation. The Mount Washington location was giving them too many problems being a 90-year-old building. Money would not come in part because of the Northridge earthquake, which damaged the building even further and money was just not floating around after that. It was under the lead of the new director, Dwayne King, who took over in 1998 to try to get some money flowing and save the museum. The museum at that point would install exhibits at LACMA when it was still at the May Company building. This way, they could bring the museum's collection to a new audience and this was able to get them recognition, thus leading to an institution willing to partner with them to save them. As you probably know, that institution came in 2003 mm-hmm. in the form of the Autry Museum of the West Heritage. Yeah, you're welcome. Together forming the Autry National Center for the American West. The Southwest Museum itself closed to the public in 2009 with only portions available by appointment. It might be sometime before it opens the public again, although I looked on the website, it said open Saturdays 10 to 9. That was before be. quarantine, no. obviously. Oh, you mean after quarantine? You mean after quarantine started. <laughs> obviously, you can't go to it right now, but then even when everything opens up again, I its think, status yeah, might be kind of weird. I think they're in trouble again. Like, they're looking for buyers or something, I saw. Now, the Autry is looking to unload the Southwest Museum. In the Old West, if the load is too big, just cut it you loose. Gotta, gotta cut it loose. Dump it in the Rio Grande. And now that's why we have family in Utah. As the people from the Autry said about trying to sell their portion of the Southwest Museum, reactivating the space as a museum would cost tens of millions of dollars. And reactivating the Adobe, where Hummus Lummis lived, as an educational <laughs> or cultural space would be an additional five they to should, seven million dollars. At the cafe, they should sell Charles Fletcher Hummus. You're stupid. Um, the Southwest Museum not only carries the legacy of the region and Charles Lummis, but of all the Native American communities represented by the museum. And if they can't find a buyer, I hope the artifacts can find a home in those communities again. Yeah, what's, I mean, what would happen if, like, no one, you can't just close a museum, museum. can you? Keep a bunch of, like, what do you do with the artifacts? Yeah. Bury them again. I guess. From dust to dust. <laughs> okay, so let's get into, you mentioned it, the, the sugar daddy of your museum, if you will. Gene Autry. <laughs> Is the place to be. Cowboy living is the life for me. <laughs> and soon it will be for you too. I didn't say sugar daddy. <laughs> I'm still there. You didn't have to. <laughs> we cut you loose because you were, you were look, we're running out of sugar. <laughs> we need a sugar daddy. We need a sugar granddaddy. <laughs> so the year, 1988. The vibe, 100 years before that. <laughs> it's the grand opening of the Gene Autry Western Heritage Museum founded by Joanne and Monty Hall and Jackie and of course, Gene Autry. So four people. Originally, it was going to be built in Buena Vista Park, which is that park right when you get off of Buena Vista in Burbank that's across from Forest Lawn. Is it known as Johnny Carson Park? No, no, that no. Not, that, that's a little bit if you go left okay. on that, that's Johnny Carson Park. If you go right, that's Buena Vista Park. I kind of just wanted to say Johnny Carson Park. <laughs> I kind of knew it wasn't, but okay. <laughs> Here's Johnny Carson Park. <laughs> but the neighbors around there complained so much that it was going to ruin their park that they had to back down. Meanwhile, I've never seen anybody in that park ever. <laughs> I don't know what they were fighting for nobody uses that i park. parked and ate lunch but not in the park i just parked next to the park yeah, and you could have done that next to the gene autry museum <laughs> so now they set their sights on the granddaddy of all the parks griffith park yeah brother and of course the neighbors complained it was going to ruin their there park and make no too neighbors. much traffic the gorillas at the zoo but they agreed to add 330 parking spaces and in 1986 the city council approved the lease on that spot of land right across from the zoo at what is now 4700 western heritage way for a 50-year lease for a a year and on November 12th of that year the groundbreaking on the 34 million dollar museum started but 
I'm so cold. Sidebar, I am freezing. My hands hurt and I'm wearing gloves. I know. I'm still wearing... I've had my gloves on the whole time you've been telling the last story and they're still not warmed up yet and I'm just shivering and we've just been told we can't record here anymore. So let's just go inside. Come inside my apartment. Yeah, come inside my apartment. You can't record here in these two spots where no one ever parks. I will have cut that out of the episode, but one of my landlords walked up to us and said, you can't record here. And we told them why Why? it makes no difference to anybody that we record here. And they said, no, you go inside your apartment together and record. Because you can't park here because nobody parks in these spaces. So you can't sit here because no one parks here. Anyway, I'm freezing. Let's take one giant bow-legged step back to get to what I am talking about here, partner. (laughs) What's Western heritage? What's a cowboy? What's a Gene Autry? I'll start with that one because Gene Autry is up there with Bob Hope and the like as being one of the biggest celebrity forces in Los Angeles ever so cold so cold this is very not wild west i thought we would be like dusty and wearing chaps when we would be talking about this i know back in the saddle again but no i'm just shivering it's funny that you bring up back in the saddle again we'll get to it for those of you who aren't 90 years old or were at this museum like i said every weekend for most of their life let's get into it partner (laughs) born september 29th 1907 in tioga texas was a little baby a little a little baby a little cow baby baby (laughs) named orvin grover gene autry orvin grover was his real name oh gene in quotes gene in quotes that's a a nickname i guess i guess orvin Uh, his parents it gets worse were delbert and elnora osmond and you couldn't pay me to pick which of those two names was his mom and which was his dad (laughs) i have no idea gregory is the wife what it's like a um the doctor was a woman thing the gregory was the wife so his family was a really old texas family also and the way you can prove that is because an autry actually died at the alamo at the alamo yeah you remember i cannot remember remember. but from a very young age his family surrounded him in music his grandpa who was a preacher taught him to sing at age five and at night his mom would teach him hymns and folk songs so at age 12 he saved up some money bailing hay on a farm and bought his very first guitar from the sears and roebuck catalog and he was off how very cowboy of you yeah to shop at sears <laughs> back then it was a real sears versus jc penny situation <laughs> by age 15 he was in school plays and was playing his guitar at the cafe in tioga but national singing cowboy movie star isn't really a career thought that passes through a farm kid's head from small town texas so instead he ended up working the one thought that does pass through your mind a telegraph operator for a railroad in chelsea oklahoma that'll do by the mid to late 20s working the 4 p.m to midnight shift every single day just I guess they probably had real words by then but language was developed (laughs) at one of these sad sounding nights he was sitting in the office alone with his guitar singing a song when a guy walked in and Gene freaked out because he knew who this was that walked in but this man he just told him to keep playing so he gave him a little concert this man was Will Rogers oh my god who was a massive star at that time and Will Rogers thought Gene was pretty good which this all sounds like someone's bad fantasy of like how they made it into the big yeah. time like and then will rogers walked in walked while i was in working the midnight shift <laughs> <laughs> so he told gene to try going to new york city and new york city and giving radio a try or go pro as a singer so he did just that which is almost beat for beat the beginning of midnight cowboy <laughs> almost um and <laughs> something missing that was one part was one aspect of his motivation <laughs> and in 1929 he auditioned for rca victor but he was trying to appeal to what he thought they wanted so he was singing like 
pop hits in his audition. He went up there singing Toxic. (laughs) (laughs) And they told him his voice was good, but that style of music didn't really suit him and he had to figure out his niche. So he went back to Oklahoma and kept singing, but focused more on the songs he grew up with and the songs people were singing around there, which were folksy cowboy country songs. And that just clicked. And in 1929, he appeared on KVOO in Tulsa as Oklahoma's yodeling cowboy. So he was yodeling and telling stories. And after this, suddenly RCA was interested in him. I mean, who would a a yodeling cowboy? How can we pass that up? (laughs) He was a little bit known and now he had a shtick. Okay. He was a singing cowboy, which was always such a weird, like to me, I always thought like, what a weird showbiz matchup gimmick thing about yeah. singing cowboy. But apparently it was a real thing, like yeah. in cowboy times. The idea of singing cowboys was around since the 1870s, which were, you know, that's cowboy time. <laughs> People like to hire cowboys who could sing because on their long rides of herding cattle, they wanted someone with them who could keep things interesting and also help the cows fall asleep at night. Is that a character in Andy Griffith or am I making that a up? Singing, I, I mean, there was probably a... A singing cowboy. Oh no, I'm thinking of the W.C. Fields movie. Probably, but also that was the time of fake singing cowboys. Yeah, that's true. But the W.C. Fields trope was also a real thing <laughs> back in cowboy times. You know, it's based, the W.C. Fields trope is based on W.C. Fields. It's based on Mr. Magoo. <laughs> then once the West started getting tamed and long cattle drives got replaced by slaughter farms, <laughs> the mythology of the singing cowboy out on the range got romanticized and it was folded into vaudeville and other traveling shows where they would hire these cowboys to sing in them and then people who weren't actually cowboys but could sing and pretend mm-hmm. to be cowboys while they did it so that's yeah. sort of how the the showbiz thing of a singing yeah. cowboy started then when movies came along that trope carried over to that with the first singing cowboy on film being ken maynard at republic pictures which is now cbs radford studios in studio city oh, wow. and the man who replaced him as their stock singing cowboy in their movies John Wayne. John Wayne sang. He was a, well, <laughs> well, well, well. Let well, me tell you the well, story well. of the singing John Wayne. Uh, no, he didn't. He couldn't sing, so they dubbed him over. Oh my! His God. singing voice was dubbed over by a guy named Smith Ballou because <laughs> he could, I, uh, he could act, I guess. Yeah. And they needed a cowboy to sing, so yeah, he started out as a sort of singing cowboy. So back to Gene. RCA wanted him now, so he did his first record with them, released October 9th, nineteen twenty nine, but ended up switching to. ARC because they were smaller and would give him more of their attention but eventually he ended up at Columbia. These first records of his were a mix of blues, cowboy, hillbilly, country, and yodel. So Mm -hmm. it was all Americana music. Then from this he was invited onto the National Barn Dance Show on WLS Chicago and that was it. Now he was nationally a nationally known radio sensation. On a national level. Uh, National. National, Nationwide. Nationally he was on a national level. He he. This is humiliating. <laughs> a car just drove by and almost splashed me in a puddle. What is happening That's to what our show? To losers in movies. This is my Gene Autry origin story. <laughs> Being on a podcast is a loser in real life. Yeah, this is the equivalent of working the midnight shift in a <laughs> telegraph office. Yeah, the, oh my God. Like, why is there so much traffic back here? All I can hope for is that the podcast equivalent of Will Rogers walks by right now. He's yeah. like, you guys are pretty good. Paul F. Tompkins. What <laughs> Joe <doing>? Rogan. <laughs> so he put out more records, but his first hit came in 1931 with That Silver Haired Daddy of Mine. Oh, that's the song. I thought you were talk- referring to a person. Yeah, my dad. <laughs> he, <laughs> my he father. recorded with Gene Autry. It sold over 30,000 copies in a month. And by the end of that year, it sold 500,000 copies. So this was huge for 
for ARC, which was his record label at that time. And they wanted to do something special to commemorate it. So they took one of their records and dipped it in gold and gave it to him as a gift. And this was where the tradition of the gold record, wow. when you get 500,000 yeah. sales. The first one was given to Gene Autry. Then they had to give him a second gold version of it when it sold a million copies. A double gold. A double, uh, two carats. <laughs> You've probably never heard that song because why would you? But he recorded a ton of songs that you definitely know. He did Back in the Saddle again. That's a great song. That's Gene Autry. A Tumble and Tumbleweeds, yeah. which is the song from the beginning of The, the Big Lebowski. Yeah. He did Peter Cottontail oh, okay. in 1950. And then he basically did the Holy Trinity of Christmas songs. In 1947, like we discussed in our episode where we did parades, he did the original Here Comes Santa Claus. Yeah. In 1949, he did the original Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which he did not want to do because he thought it was stupid, but his wife convinced him kids would like it. So he did it in one take. And they ended up having to invent platinum records for that because it sold over 2 million Come copies. On. They had to dip it in platinum. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 1950, he did the original Frosty the Snowman. Really? So the big three, it was all Gene Autry. In all, he made 635 recordings. Over 300 of those he either wrote or co-wrote, but a lot of these he actually just bought the copyright from the people who actually wrote it and said he wrote it. With a total, he had nine gold records and one platinum. In doing so, he pretty much set the tone of country music for two decades. Yeah. And also Frosty the Snowman. <laughs> he set the tone for snowman-based music for two decades. But radio was old news. In the 30s, it was all about movies. It was an obvious decision to put this guy on screen. So in 1934, he made his debut in, in Old Santa Fe, which was actually a Ken Maynard movie. So he was just cameo, basically, oh, where he sang a song. And little did Ken Maynard know, boy, was he going to be replaced. <laughs> uh, but then there was also a horse named Tarzan in it, which confused me because I didn't know horses were listed on IMDb. <laughs> and it just listed starring Ken Maynard and Tarzan. And there was no picture. I'm like, who's, who's Tarzan? <laughs> Tarzan beats the cowboy. Tarzan versus Jesse James. His... Uh, I would love that. Um, his first starring role in a movie was the next year in The Phantom Empire, which was a Western sci-fi, wow. which sounds perfect for me. And he quickly moved up the movie totem pole and was snatched up by Republic Pictures because they had a singing cowboy problem. Ken Maynard was already on his way out and also couldn't really sing that well ever. Yeah. And there was John Wayne who couldn't sing at all. So yeah. the natural replacement was Gene Autry, who was a singing cowboy who could actually sing. Uh, he could act fine, but boy could he sing and by 1937 he was a huge star doing a new movie is churning out of republic once every six weeks Jeez. was a new gene autry movie and he was getting paid five thousand dollars a movie and he was getting hundreds of fan letters a week and became america's favorite singing cowboy which not a lot of competition he did have a disagreement with republic because in the late 30s he was this huge star but he was still being paid the same he was when he first got into movies so he refused to show up to the set of a movie he was shooting which was called washington cowboy <laughs> so they had to finish it up with a different actor and renamed it Under Western Stars. And this ended up being the starring debut of his replacement, not only in this movie, but eventually in everything, Roy Rogers. Oh, wow. So he got kind of his first start from Gene Autry pulling a fit about getting paid. But he was able to <laughs> are work. Are Roy Rogers and Will Rogers related? I don't think they are. Okay. It's like a Audrey Hepburn and Catherine Hepburn oh, situation. Right. I, I, it the was only, like the two people only ever with this name. Yeah. And Steve and Rogers. And, and they're Mr. both Rogers. singing cowboys. Yeah. yeah. Two other singing cowboys. <laughs> from modern times Stephen Stephen Mr. Mr. Stephen Rogers yeah Stephen Mr. Rogers <laughs> he was able to work out these differences in 1938 with Republic and the cowboy factory was reactivated Gene crafted a whole persona and mythos about his characters who by the way were all called Gene Autry in all of his movies it was like if Tom Hanks was called Tom Hanks in every single movie Run Tom 
run. <laughs> Houston, this is Tom Hanks. We have a problem. <laughs> this is the Polar Express clocking in. Tom Hanks, conductor. Uh, can we get to Christmas Town really quickly? Hi, I'm big. I'm Tom Hanks. I have AIDS. I'm Tom Hanks. <laughs> He's dying at the end of Saving Private Ryan. I'm Tom Hanks. (laughs) So to start, he vowed to always, this was Gene Autry's persona he crafted. He vowed to always dress like a cowboy whenever he was in public. I'm going to need that in writing. It was written into law if he was (laughs) ever caught wearing chinos or something. Going to the slammer. But he also came up with what he called the cowboy code, which were the 10 commandments of cowboy ethics that all of his characters had to follow. Ahem. A cowboy must never shoot first, hit a smaller man or take unfair advantage, never go back on his word or a trust confided in him always tell the truth be gentle with children the elderly and animals must not advocate or possess racially or religiously intolerant ideas cool must help people in distress must be a good worker must keep himself clean in thought speech action and personal habits must respect women parents and his nation's laws and of course the cowboy is a patriot those were the 10 command the 10 cowboy commandments (laughs) he put racial justice in there that's pretty neat better than our 10 commandments (laughs) he do all of this in his signature white hat and by his side always was his trusty horse champion who was actually many horses he just kept naming champion (laughs) there was champion the world's wonder horse who could roll over play dead and untie knots who died in 1943 of a heart attack oh wow the the idea of a horse having a heart attack is terrifying to me lindy champion who was born the day of charles Lindbergh's flight champion jr little champion touring champion television champion and champion three (laughs) those were all of the champions he had the champions tequila tequila by the champions we are the champions <laughs> together we are the champions all of these champions could smile on command use a hula hoop and do the charleston which is the funniest sentence i've ever written that's probably the one yeah and it's just the facts <laughs> early on his movies weren't very popular in big cities but they were huge in small towns and in 1940 gene autry was voted by theater distributors as the number four box office attraction in the country behind mickey rooney oh my god clark gable and spencer tracy uh which one of you four is a cowboy Mickey Rooney (laughs) only if he pretends to be an Asian cowboy then in 1941 he was nominated for an Oscar for his song Be Honest With Me by then he was making $600,000 a year between his movies live appearances he was the first celebrity to endorse a mail order product surprise it was a guitar and he was also still doing radio during all of this from 1940 to 56 he had a radio show on CBS called Gene Autry's Melody Ranch it was put on by PK Wrigley son of the chewing gum freak who decided to make an entire new radio show for gene after he saw that gene went on a trip to dublin and a crowd of two hundred thousand people came to see him which i think is more people than live in ireland yeah it is it is trust it me. is I, I was looking up facts about ireland <laughs> in whatever year you're in what are you like the 40s or 50s uh 2016 <laughs> i think gene autry was on tour in ireland <laughs> this radio show that they made for him it had drama comedy and of course singing yeah. and then world war the second one hit and cowboy music had to be turned into bullets it's back the joke is back <laughs> he rode into a battle against the nazis on a horse the cowboy hat and a lasso with a guitar yeah <laughs> home, home. <laughs> on air during his show at the request of the pentagon he enlisted in the air force to fight the germans and or japanese on air so the government reached out to gene autry and was like could you suit up yeah cowboy saddle and up? also do this yeah time to get back in the saddle again <laughs> right i don't support war <laughs> i don't support your imperialist war so during world war ii gene autry was a flight officer with air transport command carrying fuel to southeast asia from 1940 43 to 45 but in 1942 he was still able to do his radio show only now it was called the 
Sergeant Gene Autry radio so show. Funny. Post-war, he was still under the control of the Air Force, but he was assigned to the USO in the South Pacific until 1946. It's he, so funny the government treats him like a Barbie, like limited edition. Hey, Sergeant Autry, you sign those papers. You do what the <laughs> you do what the Army says you do. Now lasso this Nazi <laughs> in front of everybody. This is the part of his career that's similar to Captain America. Yeah, wouldn't that be great if like Gene Autry hogtied Hitler at the end of? <laughs> Yeah, and, and then Elvis came in and <laughs> pistol whipped him. Yeah, he gyrated against Himmler. Against Goebbels. Him, yeah. To death. He gyrated Himmler to death. And then Buddy Holly shows up <laughs> and, and he plants an American flag on the top of the Reichstag. That's how World War II should have ended. I agree. So he was back in the USO, but 1946, he was sent home and it was right back to movies. But by 1950, again, he saw the way the wind was blowing and new cowboy movies were going away, but cowboy TV shows were just starting. Yeah. So he ended up being in 91 episodes of the Gene Autry show as well as several other westerns TV shows he ended up retiring from movies for good in 1953 with a total of 93 feature length movies under his belt he's in the Country Music Hall of Fame the National Cowboy Hall of Fame he's also the only person to have five stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame one for radio records film TV and theatrical performance but I forgot that that's Gene Autry is not why we came here today I was so involved in TV Cowboys and like tell me about more TV Cowboys but that's not why but that wasn't even close to the end of what Gene Autry did in this city. He may not have been a man of higher education, but he was obsessive about reading newspapers mm-hmm. and would read two or three full newspapers a day. Damn. So he knew which way the tumbleweeds were blowing. He had a good sense of public trends and he also had a good business sense and he invested the money he was making very well. He started after World War II when he saw that in the time he was in the Air Force and couldn't be performing. He was making, like I said, the year before the war, about 600000 a year. And during the war, he was making... $598,000 less a year. So he only made $2,000 because he wasn't making movies. Yeah. So he realized that if he wasn't constantly working, which he knew he couldn't do forever, he wouldn't have any money. Yeah. So he invested in hotels, owning the Hotel Continental in Hollywood. He invested in a marketing firm. He bought Monogram Ranch in Santa Clarita in 1952, where they would film westerns and renamed uh-huh. it Melody Ranch. He formed Golden West Broadcasters and started buying up radio and TV stations. He owned KPHO Radio and Cool TV in Phoenix, a radio station in San Francisco and Seattle, and right here in LA, he bought KMPC Radio, and in 1964, KTLA. He owned oh, KTLA. Wow, really? He also bought the California Angels baseball team in 1960. I remember that. In 1960, you remember when he bought it? Remember when the news broke that Gene Autry <laughs> was buying the Angels? I put down my Nixon pin, and I <laughs> and I just couldn't believe it. And he was vice president of the American League until he died. So this became his career once his singing cowboy days were done. He compared it to when you're traveling across the open range on a horse you bring a second horse with you without a saddle so when your main horse gets too tired of carrying you instead of stopping to let it rest just switch saddle to the other horse and keep yeah. going but what about the other horse it's yeah, still tired, it's still tired. Uh, he didn't see it as stopping his career it was just changing horses from showbiz to biz yeah so he just kept going and because of this he became one of the richest people in california he was on the forbes list of the 400 richest americans for years and in 1990 he was the only entertainer on that list but he always said there were three things he always wanted in life a world series ring an awesome and a museum. He was never going to get a World Series <laughs> ring owning the Angels. He missed his chance to win an Oscar, but a museum was literally something he could buy. Yeah. So he figured, let's let's do that. His dream idea for a museum was one that would showcase and make sense of the history of the American West and how it changed America and the world. But the real driving force behind the museum was his wife. So his first wife had been a woman named Ina, who was the niece of the guy who co-wrote his songs with him. And they met in 1932 and were married for 48 years before she died in 1980. But his second wife, 
was a woman named Jackie. And he met her while she was running a bank in Palm Springs uh, that he was robbing. <laughs> a cowboy. I'm a bad cowboy now. He liked her, but he hadn't asked anyone out in 48 years. <laughs> so he called her after he met her and invited her to his New Year's Eve party saying, well, you know, if you have a date, you can bring him too if you want. I'm into thruples. I'm adding a new commandment to the cowboy. <laughs> Ten commandment. The 11th commandment. Thou shalt thruple if thou, <laughs> if thou art cowboy. She didn't. And they got married in 1981. He was 73 years old and she was 39. Okay. That's a gap. Uh, that's a big canyon, <laughs> partner. Jackie also became... He would have been the one in the stagecoach with the 16-year-old. Nah. If he didn't have the commandments, though. And he the did. Only thing, thank God for those commandments. <laughs> Gene Autry would have been a monster. <laughs> thank God the god of cowboys wrote those on a piece of leather for him. Lightning struck a bunch of cows and yeah. it had the, <laughs> the commandment. Yeah, and made <laughs> a, it made a whipping sound. The thunder made a whipping sound. Thou shalt respect animals. <laughs> Jackie also became the only woman to have ever served on the Major League Baseball Executive Council, Oversight Committee, and Board of Directors. Wow. Only woman to do that. So it was Gene's dream, but Jackie and Joanne Hall were the ones that actually set it all in motion and made it happen. They made the connections. They did the fundraising. In February 1987, they had a fundraising event at the Century Plaza Hotel with musical performances by Rosemary Clooney, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., and Frank Sinatra. Wow. Other cities offered Gene to let him put his museum there, which would have been easier, but he wanted it in the city that had made him, even though it was a little bit trickier. It was worth it to him. And that leads us to op back to opening day, November 21st, 1988, a star-studded event for the modern mission-slash-early Western-style building. In attendance were Gerald Ford, Roy Rogers, Dale Evans, Willie Nelson, Ed McMahon, Tom Bradley, Glenn Campbell, Charlton Heston, Jimmy Stewart, the fake native guy Iron Eyes Cody from the commercial where he cries when he sees oh, okay. trash. Ronald Reagan, by all accounts, should have been there, but... Hang on, I'm turning pages with my gloves, but I've got a zinger coming. <laughs> he got stuck in a pool of jelly beans. What a hero you are for taking down the Reagan administration. It's about time. <laughs> and for keeping my gloves on while I did it. They had a bunch of cowboys at the grand opening gallop up to the building on horses and shoot blanks at it. Then they cut the red ribbon with a bowie knife and they were open for business. <laughs> The courtyard and the exhibit displays inside were designed by Disney Imagineering because they wanted things to be displayed in a more fun way than other museums because the museum was part genuine old pioneer Western history with things like cowboy and trapper outfits, an old West Gatling military gun, a stagecoach yeah. from 1855, a notable collection of Western landscape paintings, a wall of sheriff's badges, which is cool, the guns of Teddy Roosevelt, Lummis's old friend, yeah. uh, the boxer, <laughs> Wyatt Earp, Bell Star, wow. the Dalton Gang, and the Real Wild Bunch among just a ton of old west guns yeah i love that old west gun section it's so cool. i don't i don't love guns but i love looking at old guns. i love looking at old yeah. six shooters it's, in that case that's so, uh, so cool yeah that's why i brought one today <laughs> let me point it at you you two aren't sitting here with old six shooters are you because that's not in the least it was you know old west history but it was also part western entertainment history they've got the really early stuff like buffalo bill cody's saddle and annie oakley's pistols mm -hmm. but then they have the camera used to film the squaw man which you told me was a derogatory word yeah. by cecil b demille in 1914 which was the first well, that's when the southwest museum <laughs> opened which is the you know a year after the natural history <laughs> museum which was the first feature movie ever filmed in hollywood which also happened to be a western so they yeah. have the camera used to film that you'll love this then they've got props from the radio days of westerns like the coconuts that they'd use to make horse galloping sound really effects. you can't touch them though can't touch this you can't touch this that's the official policy of the autry <laughs> museum then stuff from the tv days of westerns like costumes and props from the lone 
Ranger, Gunsmoke, yeah. the Rifleman, Hopalong Cassidy, and all the toys that went along with all of that <laughs> stuff. And then more modern Western movie costumes and props from Clark Gable, Gary Cooper, and John Wayne to Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, Clint mm-hmm. Eastwood, eventually onto movies like Tombstone, Three Amigos, and Brokeback Mountain. On October 2nd, 1998, it was the end of the trail for Gene Autry himself when he died in his home in Studio City. He's buried at Forest Lawn Hollywood Hills, and the ridge behind his home in Fryman Canyon was renamed Gene Autry Ridge. Well, do you know where his house is at? I don't know the exact address, but I if you go to Fryman Canyon, you like walk by it pretty oh, okay. much, which is... Well, I'll never do that, but <laughs> did I go on hikes, it would be cool. But the museum is still going strong, and it kind of shifted their focus as the years went on in a really important way. Yeah. To start, their collection grew a lot, not just by purchasing things and donations, but in 2002, they merged with the Women of the West, who are a nonprofit that try to highlight the history and impact of women in the American West. And then, like you said, in 2003, they merged with the Southwest Museum. Mm-hmm. At that point, they changed their name to the Autry National Center of the American West. But then again, in 2015, to the Autry Museum of the American West, because Google prioritized museum over national center. <laughs> so they wanted to get they wanted to optimize their SEO. <laughs> so their collection became huge with over 500,000 pieces in the 3,345 square meters of space in the museum itself. But then those other two institutions they have as well as the Resources Center of the Autry and Burbank, which is basically an extra 100,000 square feet of archive space. As the years have gone on, they've gotten closer and closer to their original mission statement that the Autry brings together the stories of all peoples of the American West, connecting the past with the present to inspire our shared future by making the message in the museum more truthful and inclusive to the Native American side of the story of the American West. A big focus in the museum these days is the flip side of the cowboy mystique and addresses the inaccuracies in the traditional portrayals of them and just as much space is dedicated to Native American history and artifacts as it is to pioneer history. And they take very seriously their efforts to reconcile the two sides in the same museum. And I get that feeling from them too. Last time I was there, I really got the sense that it was like almost a panoramic view of of the American West. Every every single part of it. It's the wokest museum in town, (laughs) Greg. They brought in several Native curators like Joe D. Horse Capture, which is such a great name, from the Aninin tribe in Montana and Marshall McKay, who in 2010, they made their first Native American chair of the Board of Trustees. He was the chairman of the Yocha Dehe Winton Nation and was also on the Native American Heritage Commission, the board of the National Museum of the American Indian in D.C., and also an amateur collector of Native artifacts himself. He was considered one of the five most important Native leaders responsible for preserving Native culture in the late 20th and 21st centuries and was really instrumental in the refocusing that we talked about in the Autry while he worked there until 2016. He died of COVID a month ago. Wow. Awful news that came out while I was doing I research. I kind of remember that, yeah. Another big part of this is their Native Voices program, which came to them in 1999, which is an equity theater hosted out of the Autry and is the only equity theater in the country devoted entirely to new plays by Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And it's equity, so it's all union pay and the staff yeah. is 100% Native American. They also have tons of lectures, movie screenings, live music, the Masters of the American West program each year, which curates works from 70 modern Western artists. They have the big American Indian arts marketplace every November with 200 artists from over 40 tribes selling their work. And this past April, they started asking people to send in their own personal artifacts from during the pandemic, like journals and masks right. and recipes doing that. to try to document this new moment in the American West. So they're a museum that's very much alive. And to all that, I say, 
Giddy up. Giddy up, pardon Say yeehaw to that. <laughs> to all of you, I, I bid you a yeehaw. It really sucks because I've been, after hearing your two and doing research on my one, <laughs> I really want to go to these places. Yeah, and we can't. And we can't. We cannot. I feel the same way. I mean, every well, episode. Well, if you listen to my landlord, just go inside with your friends. It's fine. It's not a big deal anymore. Same thing with Bob Baker and Old Town Music Hall. Like, doing the research made me want to go just, so yeah, much it, more. Like, the day it's safe again, I'll yeah. be there. I'll be at all of these places on the same day. I'm say the third day because the first day I'm definitely going to a bar i haven't drank since <laughs> new year so it's been 26 <laughs> days and i'm not like hunkering for it but i really miss bars and if bars open up i'm gonna th- it's all a wash i'm gonna be at the hospital day one because i have a lot of ailments building <laughs> up <laughs> normal ailments yeah that i can't get looked at now before we end the episode oh, you yes. wanted to give highlights to 101 cafe risk. 101 closed and i'm really scared for the other diners that i usually go to so i'd like to everyone if you feeling like diner food you know Coral Cafe in Burbank, which is delicious, where you and I write yeah. a lot, or used to write yeah. a lot. Stay uh, out of the bathroom, though. Stay out of the bathroom, because apparently uh, it's haunted, but yeah. Craig Owen says it's not in front of everybody. That's open and doing takeout stuff right uh, now, and so is uh, Bun and Burger in Alhambra, which is a diner that I absolutely love. Okay. Beautiful exterior building, but the, it has a great diner menu. The diners I love have all closed already, Yeah, but uh, you told me to come up with a restaurant, so I might as well. Hyatt's Kitchen in North Hollywood. It's okay. a good, it's Mediterranean food. Go there. Yeah. Support them. It's a really good place, and it would be a shame if they closed. Maybe once a week. Once, once a week, week rotating. Go there. Yeah. go there once a week. We'll go there that's once a week. What, that's what we are not asking, demanding of you right yes. now. Yeah, I want to try like maybe like a Friday, make a date of ordering takeout from diners that I want them to be there when I get back. Get a side of the experience of us sitting there for hours talking about how to write late night packets. Yeah, how to, yeah. What what's a funnier line for Kalamazoo. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez to say? Is it funnier to say her whole name or abbreviate? <laughs> Ask the person who brings your patty melt to yeah. your car. Oh, patty melt sounds good. I'm so hungry right now. You know what sounds even better than a patty melt? Leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. If you have an iPhone, just open it up. Press five stars right there. You can leave words if you want, but you don't have to. And it's so easy. It's so easy. It's and so it, easy. It makes us more noticeable and it makes it easier for people to find us so we can keep this going. And we won't have to be told by people who are... She's not even my landlord. She works for the company. <laughs> she put more effort in telling us leave than getting your neighbors out. Anyway, leave a review on on iTunes. <laughs> yeah, find us on YouTube or Spotify or yeah. Stitcher or some people found us on Stitcher. I guess we're I, pretty I, findable these days. Find us on Instagram Ali underscore Meekly on Twitter at Ali Meekly. We have a Facebook for some reason. Well, website we just is, support their cause. Yeah, support, yeah <laughs> we really like to put money in Zuckerberg's pocket. We're starting a website. It's coming out very soon. There's just working out the kinks of that now. And you can subscribe to us on Patreon as well to support yes. us financially. For $5 a month we will send you a, post, a handwritten postcard every single month. For less than that you won't get a darn thing but yeah. we'll get your money and we'll still say your name on the show mm-hmm. and it supports us we're still independently made so it keeps us going financially yeah maybe it could buy us a hut with a shield that me and daniel could record yeah. in and get out of the cold and out of parking spaces that we get scolded for sitting in maybe it'll give us bribe money to give these people oh, yeah. who when they say you can't be in this completely unoccupied area yeah uh, so yeah we hope you enjoyed this february episode we'll be back in no wait yeah this is february, february. We'll, be we'll be back, back in, in march. march april will be our official one year uh, quarantine quarantine episodes yeah. we'll do something special for and that like not record or not do an intro or yeah something. well actually we'll be apparently recording back where we started quarantine back in that park <laughs> in the middle of the field when it's freezing we're doing car to car i don't care if i can't hear you that it's park okay. was as cold as it is today it and was it's freezing freezing it was today. it was really cold in that yeah. park we'll see you in march yeah uh, in march. stay keep saying staying safe everybody staying sane keep staying, staying sane and safe <laughs> good, we hope 
you got inspired to look on these online resources. That's the best you can do right now. Yeah. And then when this, this is over, I'll see you at the bug room in the Natural History Museum. I'll see you in the gem and jewel room yeah. and the bird room where me yeah. and Jake Cannon could not stop laughing. So that's been yet another episode of LA Meekly, the first museum built in Los Angeles since 2013. A new commandment. <laughs> <laughs>